Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another exciting episode with Arthi and Sriram. <laughs> and today we have back, by popular demand, a very familiar face. Uh, he is the actually the most viewed person on our channel. If you go to our channel on YouTube and start by most popular, you will see uh, his face and his name right at the top. So we we give what the, the crowd what they want. <laughs> yes. Uh, Who is this person? Yeah. Uh, well. The one, the only Mr. Uh, well, formerly current thing. I'm not sure we see it anymore, but uh, Mr. Current thing, Mark Andreessen. Mark, welcome back. There's always a current thing. Uh, well, okay, we will get to that. Now, the idea we had for doing this show was, uh, you know, in Spotify, when you go to an artist, say, YouTube, Madonna, etc., there is a, this is YouTube, you know, this is like, well, here's like, you know, the canonical reference for this artist. And if you just listen to these 10 songs, you can, you know, sound smarter dinner conversation. So the idea behind this is to be the canonical P marker uh, content archive, okay? But uh, with that, uh, you know, I want to get going by asking you a very serious question. Uh, what did you get done this week? <laughs> not not <laughs> nearly enough for, <laughs> for Elon's satisfaction. It's Thursday night, Mark. I have one more day to go. Yes, I, I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure that you will let me know, and he will let me know. Uh, well, neither of you are shy on Twitter, uh, to put it mildly. Um, but uh, but maybe you know maybe it's an interesting question. So a lot of you, kind of part of you, seen you, you know, read you. What do you actually do in a typical week? Yes, so uh, it's a complicated grid melange of activities um so I'll, I'll try to give the the thumbnail sketch so you know the you know the the venture firm now is 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 you know that we're that we're a part of a firm and i are a part of and, and arthur by by association through through marriage, <laughs> and, through marriage and friendship um is um you know is about to pass 500 people so we're you know we've, we've really kind of hit a level of critical mass that's kind of un unusual in this business um and then we've got true you might remember is how many total general partners at the firm now 20 uh, 20, uh, 25, I'm going to say, I should know, one of us should know the answer to this question. One, one, one of us should know the answer to this question. So about 25 general partners, which means about 25 investors, and then and then across the six verticals that we invest in. Um, and so there's a couple things. One is there's just, there's a lot, I have my own portfolio companies. I have my own companies I'm on the board of. I'm on the board of about 10 startups of, diff of different sizes and a, a, you know, a couple of public companies. But um uh, you know, there's just, we have a very big portfolio. We work with a lot, you know, we're, we're fortunate to work with a lot of the really great founders. Um, and so there's, there's, there's a lot of time just spent with the actual companies. Uh, I, I like to say basically my job is to kind of, you know, put my hand up and kind of scrub in with a company, um, whether, whether I'm on the board or not, I, I scrub in kind of in two circumstances. Uh, one is if there's an unusual opportunity, you know, something that's going particularly well that, you know, where you could really see something compounding and, and becoming, you know, incredible, um, or, you know, or, you know, when the shit hits the fan, um, mm -hmm. or as, as, as the Brits call it, um, uh, where there's an omni shambles. Um, <laughs> I would say the Brits have an interesting sense of humor. I mean, I was watching the lettuce thing today, like those folks, yes. like no how to do it. Yeah, they coined, they actually coined uh, the uh, term Omni Shambles was coined in a, a famous British uh, sitcom called The Thick of It, uh, all about uh, oh. British politics, which which was a worst case scenario 
uh, for British politics at the time the show was made. Which, and, which and, was your recommendation? We loved it. Oh, fantastic show, and also a great movie, by the way. There's a movie or a version of it too. Really highly recommended. But that's right. But but that show, you know, just like House of Cards in the U.S., that show went from being a worst case scenario of British politics to a best case scenario of British politics. <laughs> um, oh my so, god! So the humor, <laughs> the humor, the humor might be fading a bit. But um, anyway, um, yes, they have this wonderful word omni shambles, which basically is is when everything goes wrong. Um, and you know, like the nature of companies is generally either a lot of things are going right, a lot of things are going wrong. And the, the reason is for that is because success tends to feed on itself, right? Momentum begets momentum. And then when things, when things go sideways, um, you know, a whole bunch of things start to go wrong at the same time. Um, and, you know, look, every company goes through these like crazy ups and downs. Like there, there's no big successful company that hasn't gone through plenty of crisis periods. So, you know, so we always try to roll up our sleeves. Uh, ben, ben and I try to roll up our sleeves and always scrub in. So it's a lot of that. Um, it's a lot of, and then it's, you know, it's chasing new deals. Um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, we're always on the hunt, uh, for the next big thing and we always have deals in flight. And so, you know, I try to help, you know, kind of close those and get to know the founders and, you know, help figure out, you know, the, the right investments. Um, and then, uh, what else? Um, you know, we spend a lot of time, you know, kind of building what we want to be the world's best network. Uh, so when founders come work with us, we, the term that, that Ben and I use is it's like plugging into the matrix. Like you, you basically mm -hmm. raise money from us. You, you basically get access to the world, which means you kind of get access to a lot of the sort of most important people, you know, kind of across every sector of society and business. Um, and so, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time with people outside the firm. Um, and then, um, you know, probably two other things. One is just learning. Um, you know, it's just, it's just extraordinary, right. How this, how this field keeps evolving. Um, and you know, the things that were important 10 years ago are still important, but there are a whole new set of things that are important and they're brand new. Um, and they're often very, very different. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's very kind of natural human behavior at some point to stop learning. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're, we're all always trying to inject ourselves into new things. Um, and then it's, and then it's, you know, stuff like this, it's sort of outbound, uh, we think of sort of outbound communication, you know, PR, um, you know, kind of, uh, all the work we do videos and, you know, content and, 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 and writing and so forth. Um, you know, it's, it's basically, it's like, we have a point of view, you know, we know what we stand for. We, you know, we have a point of view. We think we have a, a sense of how, you know, new technology should get built, how new companies should get built, how new industries should get built, how the world should evolve. And, you know, we, we like to kind of broadcast that as, as, as widely as we can. Um, you know, some of that's just to get the ideas out, but a, a lot of that has to do with having people feel like they know us by the time they meet us. Mm -hmm. Uh, right. Cause if you, you know, it's like, any, you know, it's like, any, if you have a chance to read a lot of writing that somebody has done or listen to a lot of audio, uh, or watch a lot of video, you, you can really get a sense of somebody before you actually meet them for the first time. And, and so it, it, it turns out, I think to be very helpful in building trust, uh, with people we're meeting for the first time. So that's the broad, uh, cross section. Well, well I want to get to the knowing people part, but you know, I had read somewhere that you had retired, but I guess that's not true. Uh, uh, <laughs> I have read, I have, I have read variously that I've retired. I've read that I've moved to Miami. Um, I have read, I have which read is many. Worse? Which one is worse? Okay, we want. Yeah, I, I, let's see. <laughs> I think Miami is Miami is a lovely city, um, especially uh, in July. Yes. Um, so um, uh, yes, uh, no retire. Uh, visit Miami, but haven't moved there. Uh, very. Uh, I would say I was going to say very happily in California. I'd say very semi happily in California. Um, so, I sense yeah. the hesitation there with the happily. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> happily in California. There's, there's, there's a comment in there, and uh, yeah, below Miami. Uh, and uh, but so I, I think I want to get to one of the topics. You had a recent tweet storm, which I thought was super fun and interesting, and we want to kind of maybe unpack that uh, a little bit. It, one of the things which I think is really interesting about you, and I know we talked about this uh, behind the scenes, but I think we talk about it with founders, et cetera, is I would say the, how do you 
how do you and how do maybe people listening think for themselves think independently and what i mean by that is like arty and i you know grew up in india you know grew up in sort of a very traditional culture and you know growing up there was a lot of pressure on us to conform mm-hmm. and you know and of course arty was a crazy wild person and you know i was like less crazy and wild but there was really like you know a way you know there was definitely like uh, the way you thought uh, you know uh, there were strong cultural beliefs um and we always can try to like resist that and find our own path out of that uh um and it's hard and i think a lot of people watching this right like you know are uh you know are, are, are trying to figure out how to escape the matrix and i know you think a lot about beliefs how you know, how to get out of them so let's just start with how should somebody think for themselves i uh, didn't just start by saying that was a really good andrew tate uh, reference there uh, for people who didn't catch it uh, I, oh this video God. was this video is <laughs> going so well and now this is going to disappear we just the- gave our editor a little bit of a job to do there we just noting the minutes right now i just want your videos to have those interesting flags on youtube in the search results right you know like this must say some name i couldn't hear it there was some technical difficulty <laughs> just a bleep 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 bleep, bleep. <laughs> that's all you're going to hear exactly Um so let's do uh, I think you guys are uh, hopefully interested let's do the long version of this question. Yes. Um, yes. Uh, yeah. long version of the answer because I think there th- th- this is a very you know this is a very important uh you know kind of question how how to think creatively um and uh you know it's 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 something you know we we we've all thought about a lot in in our, in our business I've I've thought about a lot and and it's it's really complicated right uh, and and you know just start with like the default answer which is most people don't right like most people just don't think creatively um there's actually psychologists have actually this test where there's like they they can actually test people's basically level of creativity and they the way they do it is there's like 15 different creative domains like art and music and writing and so forth and you know software and, and then there's like seven levels of creativity ranging from like an amateur project you do in your spare time all the way to like a national award winner um and you know depending on how you fill out the matrix you get your sort of sort of creativity quotient and most most people score <laughs> zero right <laughs> like most people just go through life not cre- and by and by the way like many many people are happy not creating which is which is something we'll you know we'll, we'll talk about but you know it it it, it you like it, a truly creative person is in, in any field of activity is is um is a really rare thing so so let me come at this in a in a in a couple different a couple different layers um and so let me identify the layers up front so there's a there's a sort of a, a psychology layer mm-hmm. um let's call that there's like a sociology layer like group psychology layer um and then um let's say there's a um sort of a friends uh, social network layer which is mm-hmm. really important which we'll, we'll talk about um and then there's finally the kind of what do you do like how, how do you go about it like if you, if you want to do more of it mm-hmm. so so the psychological layer so at the level of individual psychology um it actually turns out there there is a, there's a science of of of, hum, of sort of individual psychology that's long established over decades uh, called psychometrics and and the the sort of uh, scientists who study this have settled in on this sort of model of of human psychology uh at the individual level they call it the so-called big 5 personality mm-hmm. traits and 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 it's i find this to be a super interesting framework for thinking about exactly this kind of question so just to review quickly so the big 5 personality traits conveniently form the acronym ocean o c e a n mm-hmm. um and so the traits are openness uh conscientiousness um extroversion agreeableness and neuroticism mm-hmm. um and then basically you know for each of those um you know basically there's like the trait and then there's this opposite so open versus closed conscientious versus not conscientious agreeable versus disagreeable right extroverted versus introverted neurotic versus you know basically like emotionally stable um and then you know interestingly at the population level each of those traits is distributed on a, on, on a bell curve and so in in any population in any of these traits most people are some were in the middle mm. you know they're kind of somewhat introverted somewhat extroverted somewhat open somewhat not 
Um, and then you have these outliers um, where, you know, you get these people who are on the fringes uh, mm -hmm. of the distribution. And, you know, when it comes to creativity, basically who those people are, those people are, are just, they're incredibly highly open, mm -hmm. like for sure. Like they have to have a high degree of openness, right? P people who do, don't have a high degree of openness are, are not going to be creative. They're not going to want to be creative. They're not going to be happy if they're in a position where they're expected yeah. to be creative. So when, when you say yeah. openness here, maybe it's worth mm -hmm. defining what openness means, because the way I interpret it is like, Openness is being open to new ideas, thoughts, experiences, willing to experiment. Like that's the picture I have in mind. Yeah, that's right. So it's openness to new ideas, and and, and this is a very deep this is a very deep seated thing in human nature, right? And so and this this applies across many many areas of life. You know, mm -hmm. so how do you feel about you know how do you feel about reading a new a new book? Right. How do you feel about reading a new book in an unfamiliar genre? How do you feel about reading a new book by an unfamiliar author? Um, how do you feel about trying a new kind of food? How do you feel about trying, you know, a new uh, a place to go on vacation? Um, how do you feel about talking to somebody, right, um, who doesn't share a cultural background with you? Um, and, you know, look, they're, they're, one of the interesting things about personality traits is there's value on all on sort of for there's value of openness. There's value for also, by the way, sort of not yes, openness. Yes. Like yeah. at the population level, you want some people to be like explorers. Uh, but you also want some people to like stay home, right? Mm -hmm. And like keep the fires burning and like, you know, basically keep things stable. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's, this very, it's this very deep seated thing. So it's just, it's really hard to be creative if you're not open. And, and there's a subtlety, there's a nuance in there, which is very important, which is can a person who has sort of low openness, um, who tests, you know, sort of, you, you can do, the, you can run these, run these kind of tests on yourself. Uh, is there somebody who scores low and sort of the openness trait, like, can they be creative? And it's like, Maybe if they really force themselves, they might be able, like if they really force themselves to like write a poem, they might be able to, but they're not going to like it. Right. It's okay. like there's there, it's like their their nervous system is not wired that way. Right. Um, and so you you kind of need to close your eyes and kind of imagine, you know, what if you took somebody who was born to be a be a musician, for example, um, and you forced them to become an accountant, right? Or vice versa, like what if you took somebody who was born to be an accountant and forced them to be a musician, right? And mm -hmm. and 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 both people would be very, very unhappy. Um, and so anyway, there, this is sort of the inherent trait of creativity, uh, openness. So we'd say that, you know, that's one, um, you know, the, against, uh, uh, the, you know, directly re related one is agreeableness, right? Um, mm -hmm. so open plus agreeable equals every new idea is a great idea, mm -hmm. right? Equals non-discriminatory. Well, mm -hmm. it's hard to be creative if you're not discriminatory. Like one of the things that great artists have in common is they're like actually really picky and choosy over what they think the great ideas are. And they, they throw away a lot of their like initial attempts. Mm -hmm. Um, and so maybe you want like high openness, you want high, dis you want actually high low agreeability, which means high disagreeability, mm -hmm. right? So you kind of want that. Um, conscientiousness, you know, do artists or creators or programmers or entrepreneurs have to be conscientious? Probably yes, to some mm -hmm. extent, right? Yep. And, and there's a sub-trait of conscientiousness called in industriousness, which basically is like inherent work ethic, mm -hmm. right? Sort of drive to, to get things done. So, you know, you, pro you probably need some of that. So, so I, yeah. just to stop you there, because sure. when, when I first heard something like consciousness, right? Like, you know, I, uh, I thought it was like morality or ethics, but these things are actually not so much judgment calls. They're more like things on a spectrum. So for example, uh, you sometimes want, you know, for sometimes I think great founders are willing to, you know, uh, look for ways to circumvent the system or, you know, uh, try and be creative uh, in some way. Now, you, you don't want them to go too far crazy and then, you know, they wind up in an orange jumpsuit and in prison, but you do need some level of, rebelliousness so these things are not so much i think some people listening to this might think of kind of like judgments but they are not i think you know the idea is like it, people can be in any in part a of the spectrum, spectrum here yeah. yeah 
Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's wiring, like it's, it's sort of inherent. Like one of the interesting things about these personality traits just on the science is, is there's, there's these tests you can take and you can Google like big five personality tests and there's a, a bunch that are available for free on the web and you can take these yourself and basically <laughs> very interesting things. So your personality traits will tend to be very stable over your lifetime, uh, right? And so if you take the test today, five years, 10 years, 20 years, you will get basically the same results, right? And so th these, these are actually like stable in your system. By the way, with a nuance, which is generally over time as people get older, their openness declines somewhat um, and their conscientiousness grows somewhat. Hmm. And again, if you, if you kind of think about this from an evolutionary standpoint, that actually kind of makes sense, right? Because from a societal standpoint, right, you actually want younger people to be more adventurous and then you hmm. want older people to be more stable, right? And more home-oriented, right. right? So um, you're telling me that the Mark Andreessen of 20, year, uh, 20 years ago was a uh, much crazier, but much less ethical person than the one right now. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't use the word ethical. You use the word ethical. Yeah. Um, no, look, I'm far more. Con I mean, I, I'll yeah, I'll, I'll psychoanalyze myself for a moment. Like, I I am much more conscientious today than I was 20 years ago. Uh, I, I am much yeah, and for sure than you know versus 30 or 40 years ago. Like I'm much more, I'm able I'm able to be. It's more satisfying for me to be more disciplined today than it used to be. Mm -hmm. um, and then what I'm always fighting is the tendency to not, to be less open, right? Um, and you know, most people as they get older, and you know, I'm in my 50s now. You know, um, you know, it, over time, on average, when you deal with people who go from their 30s, their 40s, their 50s, they they become less open to new ideas. They're just less interested in learning. But that's and still I, like minor shifts. You're saying people yeah. fundamentally don't change. Uh, they don't they don't change for the most part like these changes are on the margin they get somewhat right. less open they get somewhat more conscientious but like everything else it, 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 it's 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 let's say it's surprisingly stable right um right and so pe people are kind of wired the way they are um yeah let me mm -hmm. let me pause there okay oh I'm, so, I'm sorry let me, let me hit one more thing that you referenced so the way to think about conscientiousness is it, it's it's split into two what are called aspects or kind of sub traits um uh, uh and uh there's industriousness um and there's orderliness Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. And this is interesting because you probably know people who are like super industrious, like bursting with energy. They get a lot of stuff done. Right. They're very high momentum and they're in their in their kind of you know work ethic uh, mm -hmm. and performance levels. But they're very low orderliness. And so they just leave like a giant mess behind them. And you could probably think of a bunch of people like that. Mm -hmm. By the way, there are people who are like super highly orderly and not very industrious. Right. And mm -hmm. they're like desk is always clean and everything is organized and they just don't get much stuff done. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, of course, there are people, you know, it's very unfortunate, like, you know, maybe if there's, you know, a, a, a sort of, you know, there, there, there are kind of potholes in, in this process and like, you know, 0% orderliness, you know, 0% industriousness plus 0% orderliness, you know, is somebody who, you know, basically never leaves their messy apartment. Like, may, maybe that's not what you want, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. I, I, like you know what? What's ideal? Like, and then, and it's a, it's a, it's a fit for, it's a fit for purpose, right? And so, when you're talking oh. about entrepreneurship, I think for sure you want a high degree of industriousness, right? Mm -hmm. um, you, you want, uh, Paul Graham has a term for this. He's, he's sort of, he calls this founder velocity, yeah. uh, which is basically highly industrious people. They just get a lot of stuff done. It's the, it's the what, you know, what, what have you got done this week, right? It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's that idea. Uh, and so you definitely want that. And then, and then basically, I think for founders, you need enough orderliness where they just kind of keep the wheels on. Right. Um, right. And they're just able to like maintain a continuous stream of activity and not have everything just be like sheer chaos. Yep. Mm -hmm. I, I want to bring this back to the theme of, yeah having original thinking right yeah. and i think we, we're talking about you know the uh, kind of the the psychological traits and i know you have thoughts on kind of the social networking hangout and but i have a question for you which is you know uh, you're well known you're famous uh, i've heard you have a nice house now in california somewhere uh, and how do you as you grow older right try and seek out you know things which may challenge you things which may you know take you in new directions because one of the things I found is as people get more successful and get more stable in their careers, you know, the kind of people they surround themselves with, the kind of their information diet 
gets locked in. And you know, part of our job, I think, is to always be seeking out the new and always be trying to seek out like what's in the front line. So how do you do it? Like, because it's, I think it's a process, a system. Yeah, no, I think that's right. And I, I view it as very much, I mean, I view it part of it as just like to do the job that we do, like I have to do it. And then part of it is like a personal preference on my part where I'm trying to kind of, I'm trying to stay ahead of my naturally declining openness. Um, uh, and so there, there, there's a bunch of things. And so one is, yeah, I mean, look, uh, there's a big information diet component to it. Like what are, what are your information sources? I'll, I'll just give you my version of it. Like 100% of my information diet is either social media or books. Um, like I, I eat, I'm on a total barbell. Like, so I, I either get information that's current right now, mm -hmm. right. Or I'm reading a book that more often than not is like 50 or 50 or hundred years old. And what I try to do is basically like fuzz out everything over a day, week, month, even year time frame, and just like fuzzle that stuff out. And so it's like, it's either leading edge information or it's like basically permanent value. Mm. Um, and so what that does is like then, then my social media experience, the purpose of my time on social media as a, as a consumer of it is basically, okay, keep, what, what I want, keep me on the leading edge, mm -hmm. show me all the new stuff, show me all the new thinking, show me all the crazy ideas, like get me exposed to all of the really creative people. Mm -hmm. And you know, this is one of the reasons I, I you know, I follow 20,000 people on Twitter. Um, well, okay, let's unpack that. Okay. First of all, okay. again, there's a fun story here, right? Like, uh, when I was at Twitter, um, and Mark's Twitter account <laughs> used to break all the time. And, um, and wait, you know, what, why, why did you say when I was at Twitter, it used to break, what did you have to do with that? Well, uh, you know, I was, you know, in sort of overseeing one of the teams, uh, which had this breakage. And when we duck into it, it turns out that there are not a lot of people on Twitter who follow 20,000 accounts, right? Like that is not what Twitter was designed or meant to do. So Mark would hit these incredibly weird edge cases, which nobody else was running into. And, uh, he would always be grumpy about it, but Okay, so let me ask you this. How do you choose? <laughs> More people should follow Twitter. Like, no, it's like, I, this, is what, this is what Twitter should be designed to do. Sorry. You know, okay, you can ahead. automate these tests. Uh, 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 yeah, I, yeah. Uh, well, uh, uh, we'll see. Maybe, maybe I have, okay, I don't want to get Enough into Twitter. Said, yes. I don't want to get into Twitter. But, uh, I, 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 you know, uh, how do you, okay, how do you pick who to follow, who to unfollow, and who to block? Ah. Yeah, yeah. So basically, so my, my algorithm is basically I follow on a single tweet and I block on a single tweet. Okay. And, it's not, and again, this is barbell. Like there's nothing in the middle, right? It's, 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 it's either or. Um, and so I follow based on a single tweet, which is all I need to do is see one tweet from somebody where it's like, oh, that, that basically that's interesting. That's provocative. There's original thinking. I hadn't thought of that. You know, that seems like some, you know, somebody kind of pushing the envelope in some way. Um, but then I also block on a single tweet. And we, if, if I see something that's like annoying or tendentious or like aggro or insulting or like, you know, crapping on somebody I care about, like, boom, gone, you know, that's it. Kablooey. Is there a way back from Mark block prison? I ask because I get at least once a week, somebody sends me a note asking to be, you know, uh, uh, asking for like, I don't know, to, uh, to get out of block jail. So is there a way back? Yeah. So that you, you, you direct message Sri Ram on Twitter. Um, and then he calls me, um, and, oh, I walked into that uh, and, uh, and then, and then by the way, I unblock, I almost always unblock, but then, you know, what always, you know, what happens almost every time is I unblock them and then they say something annoying. And then I remember why I blocked them. And then I block them again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There was a recent incident where I know I to, back to the ocean thing. It's just that people don't change. Yeah. Yeah. There, so. was, yeah. there was a recent case where <laughs> I vouched for a person and Mark was like, I reluctantly unblocked this person and uh, it didn't work out very well. But okay. Uh, and I, and I got to say, let me just add, I love blocking people. Like, I really love it. Like for me, it's it's like the best video game ever. 
It's it's so perfect. My only regret about blocking people is I can't block them in real life. Well, <laughs> okay. Uh, I have many comments there, but I don't think I'm legally allowed to say those. But all right, all right. So now I want to get to, because the thing about the barbell theory is there's something implied here. And I think it's you, but it's also, you know, Chris Dixon, you know, who, uh, who runs the crypto fund for us, which is you seek out original sources, all right? Yep. So you always try and avoid analysis by middlemen, by I would say large parts of media. And when you talk about books, you're often also trying to find books which were written in the time often 56 years ago or written by peers. Do you want to talk about that? Because I don't think that's what people think when they see books because you read a very particular kind of book. Yeah. So generally what I'm looking for from books is time, timeless, timeless information. Right. Um, and so it's, it's basically, you know, it's, you know, permanent information or as close to it as you can possibly get. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, just look, the fact is a lot of that, a lot of that, how do you know that a book has timeless information is that the book stands the test of time. Right. This is, this is where the, the Lindy concept is, is really helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, look, if, if I'm finding what often happens, I find out about a book from somebody who I think is interesting. You know, somebody I think is interesting, I'm following them or talking to them and they're like, Hey, you should read this book. Right. And if it's a book that was published like six months ago, I'm like, eh, I don't know. Let's like, let's wait 20 years and see how it does. Um, <laughs> if it's a book that was written 50 years ago, I'm like, okay, like there's a reason 50 years later why somebody who's interesting is recommending it today. Right. And I, and I find that those are often the best. Uh, those are, those are, and again, it's very specific, the timeless information, like the information that doesn't change. Yeah. Okay. In, analysis. I have a big problem with analysis. Like a, a lot of people get a lot of value out of it. And I think it, it plays a role, but there is always this, whenever there's an intermediating layer, um, you know, between the, you know, kind of the, 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 the practitioner, um, you know, the person who's actually on the front line and then the, the, the intervening analysis, like it, it's, I, I, I mean, I'll, I'll just say like, I, I go out of my way to try to avoid it. Like I just, I, I try to like not experience it. Like I try to like, I, I, I try to like actively shut it out. I, I'm, I'm actually quite worried about it corrupting my, my thought process. Hmm. Um, and by the way, like we're, you know, we cheat on this, right? Because we, we have access in the, in the business that we're in, we have access to all, we have access to all these people who are actually doing the work. Right. And so yeah, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you experience this is like when you meet with 20 entrepreneurs in a space and they tell you everything that's going on. Right. And then you compare that to what you, some piece of analysis you're reading, like it's really rare right, oh, yeah. to find third party analysis that represents it correctly. You know, I think I didn't totally understand this until I got, took this job. But I think with venture, one of the amazing, almost unfair things you get to do is some of the best people in the world, some of the people that top the fields, you know, just come and tell you, right, like come and tell you how the industry works, you know, what they're doing. And, you know, it's such a it's such an amazing job because you they show up at your doorstep or in your Zoom meeting and they just kind of explain how these things work and they have years of experience or they're some of the smartest people or often both. And it's amazing because then when you read uh, some uninformed person, you're like, oh, okay, like I actually know what the real deal is and uh, it, it's very cool. Okay, now books, tweets, I get that. Uh, what about social groups, right? Like who do you surround yourself? Because the reason it's interesting is also a lot of our listeners are you're not in Silicon Valley, you know, they may be living all over the world, often don't have access to, you know, maybe some of the circles that, you know, some of us get access to, like, how does your social environment impact you and what should people do? Yeah, so this was my fourth topic, which you cruelly uh, uh, <laughs> cut, cut, cut my I know, flow. I feel like we totally lost track of, like, how to be a contrarian, and yeah. then you just started, like, going depth I, first as opposed to like actually look, tackling the I just I will come back. Alex Speedman and Balaji go eight hours okay <laughs> so I hope Mark went to the bathroom before this because we are going to beat <laughs> that record like on the show we will go both breadth and depth first eight hours in one minute all right um the, the new challenge so um 
Uh, yeah, look, th th this is going to be the thing I was going to say. Like, look, th there, there's a part of being creative that apply that, that is individual effort and is individual effort to learn um, and is individual effort to try to actually create something. Um, and then there's a big part of it that's like, what what is your personal social network? Like, who, who right. are your friends? And there, there's an old adage that is absolutely true, uh, which is basically any individual over time, you you basically become the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Right. Um, you know, you zero in, you adapt. Um, and it's a fundamental human instinct because everybody, you know, very few people can go through life alone. You need some sort of support network. Um, your support network has a value system and they have things they care about and things they're interested in. And you will tend to care about and be more interested in those things. Mm -hmm. And if they, if you don't have anybody around you who shares your interests, uh, right, or has the same drives that you do, you'll have a very hard time sustaining it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, th th this is this is a very big reason to if you're going to be an entrepreneur, this is a very good reason to get to a startup hub geographically mm -hmm. right now, notwithstanding remote work and, and all this stuff, like to be able to have a group of friends uh, mm -hmm. who, who support each other. Like, so, let, me, let me say actual friends. Right. Um, and so like actual friends who are like happy when good things happen to you and are like sad when bad things happen to you, like not the other way around, like real friends. Mm -hmm. Um, and so you kind of need that. And it's just a lot easier to discover those people in a place where there are a lot of those people. If you can't geographically do that, you know, the, the next best thing is to, is to try to do that online. And, you know, one of the great things about the modern internet is in every different creative field, there are, you know, whatever Facebook groups to Reddit to, you know, dot, dot, all these things, um, you know, YouTube channels and so forth, where you, you, you can find, you, you can find yourself in communities, right. Um, where, um, you know, you're, you're around people like that. And so I, I think, you know, the internet is an increasingly good substitute for that. Uh, mm -hmm. e either way you go about it though, like this, this is really critically important. Yeah. I mean, I mean, this is so true for us personally. Artin actually met online, as you know, right, over Yahoo Messenger. Mm -hmm. So it was purely viewed anon. And I think a lot of people often ask me, often ask people like me, you know, how did I ever meet you? How did I ever kind of become a quote unquote, you know, insider in Silicon Valley? And we actually met because of Twitter, right? And I tweeted something, you didn't block me, and we started having a conversation. <laughs> and then we met years later. I'm still one tweet away from getting blocked, like everyone else. <laughs> like um, everyone else. But, but you know, I think this is kind of what Balaji talks about in his book also in a way, which is the internet, Twitter, is such an amazing leveling ground, right? I have so many great relationships with people on Twitter. I, they just unknown to me. I don't know where they live. I don't know what they're, you know, um, in what they look like. They just purely anon. So I think especially, you know, if folks who are watching can't get to, you know, the San Francisco Bay Area or New York or whatever, right? Twitter is amazing, right? Or GitHub or Facebook groups or Discord or whatever. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. right. Okay. Um, now I want to, you know, just on the contrarian topic, right? Like one final thing is there seems to be some level of fortitude required to think unpopular thoughts, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, uh, in the sense of, you know, when I was growing up in school, anybody there's, there's, there's pressure to conform, there's pressure to fit in. And, you know, and I think some people look at this and say, Hey, look, you know, Mark's been around, you know, it's easy for him to be unpopular, Right. What should a young person, how should, how does somebody go find the courage, right? How does somebody be willing to get into a little bit of trouble, maybe not get invited to the right events anymore? How does somebody resist the pressure to come? And again, I think back to the original question of like cultural context, right? Like, I mean, if you look at like Asian cultures, typically it's a culture of, uh, um, do you feel shame? Do you feel guilt when you break the, you know, un unspoken rules of the society or of your family, of your culture, um, but for a lot of people, especially in Silicon Valley, if you're like building companies, you probably are doing some, you are breaking some rules that are like societally, you know, not acceptable back from like India or wherever you came from. And so um, particularly for like uh, some of our subscribers, people who've like 
talk to us, sent us questions, you know, in a context that is not American, how do you then get this courage to break the norms, to think for yourself, to be okay with stepping outside that boundary of norms? Yeah. So, so yeah, so exactly. So the, the, so the, the, this is sort of the sociological layer that I was talking about. So the, so the sociology of this, um, and this is not, so this is jumping up from the level of individual psychology. This is now jumping up into kind of group psychology. Uh, what sociologists will tell you, and there's there, you can, you can read all about this and Wikipedia actually has a pretty good entry on it. Um, is basically, there's basically two different types of societies, two different mm -hmm. types of cultures uh, along this, this, uh, on this topic. And there's, it's what's called guilt-based cultures versus shame-based cultures. Mm -hmm. um, there's actually a third, which is fear-based culture, which is like North Korea, where it's just like, if you step on a line, they kill you. So let, let yeah. th th those have their own problems. Right. Um, for, for, you know, most cultures in the world today, um, I guess the bad news is they're either game, you know, guilt or shame. I guess mm -hmm. the, good, the good news is they're either guilt or shame. Um, you know, sometimes they're a blend of the, a blend of the two, but like they, they do tend to fall out as, as guilt-based or shame-based, uh, you know, generally stereotypically, uh, Western cultures are guilt-based, uh, Eastern mm -hmm. cultures, Asian cultures are, uh, shame-based. What's the difference? Um, guilt-based culture, um, right. Um, is basically if I, if I, if I, if basically I do something wrong, like I feel terrible, like about myself within myself. Right. Like I, I, you know, it's, it's sort of this, it's sort of, the, it's like Calvinism is like the extreme form of this. It's like, I have just this constant gnawing guilt. Right. right? And in fact, actually in the West, there'll be this kind of, sometimes you get in this kind of debate over whether like Protestants have like Calvinist guilt, uh, you know, Catholics have Catholic guilt, you know, Jews have Jewish guilt, like, they, you know, but it's all guilt. Like it's, it's all this sort of, it's this like inwardly determined sense uh, of unworth um, and, uh, and, and failure. Um, and, 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 that has its pros and uh, not that has its pros and cons. We'll, we'll come back to that one. The, the other one is shame-based culture. Again, stereotypically, generally Asian-based cultures, right? Shame-based culture is because, as you said, it's sort of it's 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 how you feel in the context of all of the people you feel like you have obligations to, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and and how are you representing all of those people? And so, how are you representing your family? How are you representing your country? How are you representing you know society? Right. You know, right. at, at whatever level that is, and and there you you often get in this concept of like you know face and gaining face and losing face, and mm -hmm. you know and, and literally like you know when it goes bad, it's like shame in my family, shame in my ancestors, mm -hmm. shame in my country, shame in my culture. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and and the repercussion there is basically yeah. you get ostracized from society. Yeah, so this is the thing, like guilty people, like and, and you know because I come from a guilt-based culture, like guilty people. Guilty people, you can walk around all day feeling absolutely miserable about yourself and still kind of function like you can still go to the store. You can still like hang out at a right. you, you, you're, you're miserable in, inside yourself. Right. And, and, and actually the degenerate for, for founders, the degenerate version of guilt based culture that a lot of founders go through is they feel terrible about themselves. Um, they feel terrible about the job they're doing. They feel terrible about what's going to happen, but they, they can't tell anybody. Right. Because mm -hmm. they can't tell anybody because they don't want they don't want to basically let on that they have this level of kind of crippling sort of self, you know, basically self self-loathing, self-hatred, you know, self uh, lack of self-confidence, um, you know, because, you know, so in, in a Western culture, somebody goes around and says that, you know, everybody else is like, wow, I feel bad for you. But now I know I don't want to work with you because that, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> right. I don't want to join mm -hmm. your startup because, you know, right. God, you feel you feel terrible about it. Why would I feel good about it? Yeah. Um, but you can kind of you can kind of in the West, you can kind of put this mask on. Right. And you can kind of bluff your way through it until mm -hmm. it finally chews you up and, and uh, you know, kind of and kind of spits you out. And, and in, the West, in, the, in the West, you know, there are cases I, you know, I actually I actually do know founders. I've worked with founders, you know, that not that many, but it's happened where they have committed suicide. Right. It, it, it literally gets to the point where the guilt becomes overwhelming and, and they can't handle it. So, so that's the degenerate case of a guilt-based culture, the, sort of the extreme case, not degenerate, the extreme case of a shame-based culture, Arthea, mm -hmm. is I think what you just described. 
Right. Which is sort of equally bad, but kind of plays out in this more kind of, right. I don't know what you might call it, like more social, more collective, right. more right. visible, you know, right. kind of more like everybody knows, right? right. <laughs> in a shame-based culture, everybody right. knows who the bad person is. Right. Is, is there maybe an undertone of because Western cultures are often more individualistic um, and Eastern cultures are, you know, often the family or your community is sort of the predominant uh, unit, unit. right? Yeah. And is there maybe an undertone here where, you know, if you're individualistic, maybe it's easier for the individual to carry guilt. And if it's a community-based unit, which is the, you know, the, the first thing that people think about, then it's easier to cast someone out and exile them. Yeah, I think, no, I think that's right. I mean, and, you know, to your point, as coming from India, I mean, this is kind of what we constantly see, right? At least from like public actions, um, where you work, what you do as a profession, uh, who you marry, which city you live in, all of these have to fit into that set of norms. Um, there is literally a phrase in Hindi, which basically translates to what will people think? And uh, and it is a it's a pretty famous kind of it's almost like used in like parodies and stuff now because it's like, oh, you did this. What will people think? And you have to kind of fall under fall into that. Like it's almost like there's a circle and you always have to stick within that circle. You cannot step out. Um, and kind of like what you said, we've seen people who, you know, just harmed themselves, committed suicide, like they just could not handle the fact that they were disrespecting the that that unit, whether it's their family unit, society, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. um, how do you get over it? Yeah, so that, you know, look, that's it's, this, this is the tough one. Um, you know, let me start by saying, look, it, it's gonna, it, it's, it's gonna, you're gonna be running a risk either way. I mean, in either culture, you'll be running a risk, right? Because in a guilt based culture, you're gonna be running the risk, you're gonna feel bad about yourself. In a shame based mm -hmm. culture, you're gonna feel like you're disgracing your, your, your family or your society. So, th like, th there, there is risk. And, you know, there is some level of just like, it's just flat out risk that you have to take on. Um, you know, the, the best book that I've, 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 I've read on this topic is, uh, there's this book called the courage to be disliked, um, which is this really interesting book. Uh, it's written by these two Japanese, uh, writers, one's a philosopher and the other, I think is a, is a, is a, is a writer. It's actually written as a Socratic dialogue, uh, which, which actually works well for the material. And, um, and, and it's, it's very significant that it's, it's, it's Japanese, it's a Japanese book. It's written by Japanese authors coming from, from Japanese culture. Uh, but the philosopher um, who, who co-wrote it um, is an expert actually in two very interesting things. Uh, one is a field of psychology called Adlerian uh, psychology, named after this psychologist, Alfred Adler, who was a contemporary of Freud, who had a very different point of view than Freud. And then uh, it turns out this philosopher is also an expert in the Greek philosophy of Stoicism. Um, and, and basically, Adlerian psychology is like the psychological version of Stoicism is the way to think about it. And so kind of think if you're familiar with Stoicism, think Marcus Aurelius uh, or uh, Seneca or people like that. Right. Which is sort of like, you know, for, well, for people who haven't heard about Stoicism, it's basically it's an ancient Greek philosophy that basically has to do with like, how, how do you basically how do you function in an uncertain and dangerous world? Right. Without basically having a psychological breakdown. How do how do you basically handle adversity? How do you, you know, continue to function in the face of adversity, uh, you know, including extreme adversity, right, including, mm -hmm. you know, including death and deaths of family members and so forth. So anyway, so it's 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 sort of these Adlerian psychology plus stoicism is sort of this match pair um, of concepts. And then what's interesting about that is he, he kind of articulates this sort of concept um, uh, of, of, of it's literally about the courage to be disliked, about what it means to kind of buck society and put mm -hmm. yourself at that level of risk. And he does it from an East, from an Eastern perspective. He does mm -hmm. it from the perspective of Japanese culture, which is of course, extremely shame-based. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what's interesting about the one is what's interesting about the book is it's, it's kind of a, at least I read it. It's, it's like, it's an exhortation 
like for a Japanese audience is written as like an exhortation to become more assertive. Mm-hmm. Right. And he, cause he literally says in there, like you need to become more assertive. You need to be more contrarian. You need to be willing to buck society. You need, mm-hmm. and you need, you know, you need to do that. And by the way, society needs to change, right. To, to, to actually let that happen. And so it's, 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 it's provocative. It's provocative that way. And then the other thing is just super interesting about it is it was a huge hit. Um, and so I think it sold like 3 million copies in Japan, which is huge. And then I think it sold another like 2 million copies in hardback and in the rest of Asia. Um, and so the, the way at least the authors tell the story is, yes, this is why we wrote it is because kind of people need to know, mm-hmm. right, that there's a kind of different way to do this. Like I said, none of this is a value judgment. None of this is saying that, you know, I, I don't actually think shame-based cultures have a particular, like, you know, inhibition entrepreneurship, because I am very familiar with the problems that arise from trying to do it in a guilt-based culture, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, it's a great way to feel terrible about yourself, mm-hmm. um, right? <laughs> which is, which is every bit as painful, yeah. and maybe sometimes more so. Um and so anyway, it's a, it's a good book to kind of process through this. I don't think there are easy answers on it. I think it's, it's you know, it's the old, you know, like there's this pattern. It's like, you know, the, the, you know, the nail that sticks up is the one that gets pounded. You know, the, there's a, the, yeah. this thing called tall poppy syndrome in some societies where, you know, it's just literally, a, you know, symbolism for the tall poppy gets, you know, gets. Yeah, gets or gets the angry tweets on Twitter. Or gets the angry tweets on Twitter. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so, look, there's just a certain kind well, look, there's a certain kind of person who has to do this. Like they, they're never going to be happy if they don't. There's yeah. another kind of person who definitely should not try to do this because it's just the, the load is too great. Right. Like <laughs> it's just it's just simply too great to carry. Yeah. Um, uh, and then uh, there's people somewhere in the middle. And I'll give you a story from, you know, our the episode, we did an episode a couple of weeks ago with uh, Palmer Lucky, uh, you know, right. founder of Oculus and now of Andrew. And Palmer, you know, kind of famously had, uh, you know, famously, you know, one of leaving his role at Meta. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of founders uh, would have basically, when we interviewed him, we were like, a lot of founders have just kind of given up. You know, he was obviously wealthy, he had a lot of economic resources, you know, he may have done something which was popular, but then he goes off and then decides to go be like, well, you know. Fix the next unpopular thing and like really digs into that because I knew, you know, at that, that time, right now it's kind of cool to work on something like Andy Rowe. But uh, back then, you know, there were, we, we talked about it in the episode where thousands of Google employees protesting uh, because, you know, the companies, uh, Google was like thinking about working yeah. on defense projects or something. And it was like, it was really, really unpopular. So he basically went from like leaving Meta to just doing this incredibly unpopular startup uh, where I think uh, somebody yeah. published this piece on like, uh, is this the most controversial startup of our time? Yeah, I, I think what struck me, and I'm not even sure Palmer internalizes how unique his mindset is, because what struck me is like so many people are just been like, well, you know, I have, you know, money to last me forever. I can go buy a yacht or just go live elsewhere or buy my way back into society. You know, elite society. But here he goes off and, you know, goes off into the desert, I think literally, and then builds this thing. And of course now, you know, he was proved right like many, many years later. But I think, so there is definitely a set of people who are just wired that way. Yeah, they, they have to do it. They're just going to be miserable if they don't do it. Um, and again, this goes to basic wiring. So what? go back to our big five thing. Like, what do we know about them? I mean, the big thing on this topic is they're highly disagreeable, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're just like, they, they're just like, not only do they not care what other people think, like they can't even imagine trying to conform. Yeah. Right. And, and look, it's, it's a rare thing. Like the, there are a lot of people who are not wired to do this. You know, this goes to one of these things again is like, look, somebody who's highly agreeable should probably not try to do this. They're probably going to be very, very unhappy. Right. Mm-hmm. If, if, if they try to do this. Um, 
you know, look, the other thing I would just highlight and, you know, it's going to sound, you know, maybe like a cliche, but it's absolutely true, which is like, you really do have to know what you're doing and you really have to know what you're talking about and you really have to be deep in the domain. So, and this, and this is where the, the idea of being contrarian is actually, I think maybe not that helpful because the idea of being contrarian is like, let's just assume the conventional wisdom is wrong and try to come up with a different idea. But I think the actual real thing is like, let's really deeply understand the topic area that we're working in, right? And so let's like really deeply understand the domain of like whatever, you know, Web3 mm -hmm. startups or AI or whatever it is, right? Or, or by the way, music or art. Um, it, you know, one of the things I found over the years is just amazing is like the, the great musicians are almost always just incredible historians of music. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, actually, uh, uh, Bob Dylan actually, you know, you know won, won, actually won the Nobel Prize for Literature based on a lot of among other things a lot of his writing is actually done on the history of music and therefore the history of american culture and if you read his his writings or listen to his the stuff he's done over the years like he's just incredibly deep on the entire history of american culture right the same is true for many other kind of top artists um you know they, they're, they're just really really deep in their domain and then it's it's being deep in the domain that basically gives you the actual you know license to be able to say okay you know this assumption that everybody has is actually the wrong assumption mm -hmm. and I'm not just <laughs> guessing that it's the wrong assumption I actually know it's the wrong assumption mm -hmm. right and I, and I can actually explain to myself and other people in a way that is like very clear and correct <laughs> right that, 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 you know that this is actually wrong and that, that things should work a different way mm. um you know i, I always cite the the steve uh, steve martin uh, you know his, his, his number one uh, uh the comedian steve martin his number one tip for career success right which is be so good they can't ignore you right and 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 here what that means is like be so deep in the domain be so much of an expert like understand so much right um mm. that um you know when you actually have a contrarian position like even if people don't believe you like you know you're right Right. And then, and then that's the foundation to be able to start to convince other people that you're right. Yeah. Right. Uh, by the way, I'm kind of worried that as a result of this episode, people are going to be like, well, Mark wants disagreeable people. So if I ever run into Mark in a conversation, I just need to be a total jerk. Right. Like it, he'll like me. Uh, uh, He's uh, going to have a lot of people who are just really annoying and just disagree yeah, with you all the time. Yeah. yeah uh, I, I already, I already kind of have that. <laughs> then you block uh, him. Well, uh, well yeah. <laughs> Uh, we have lots to unpack that. Okay, so I think we start talking about <laughs> we, we start we start talking about founders. So maybe this is a good segue into you know I think a lot of people watching our show are aspiring founders or founders themselves, and they often I think have some very fundamental questions about uh, company building. And you, of course, you are a multi-time founder yourself, and you know working with founders is what we do. Um, let's start with the basics, right? Let's say you know how do you decide or know whether an idea for a startup is good or not right like you know you could be anybody maybe you're an engineer you work for a few years maybe you're a student maybe you're a you know a seasoned uh you know exec any range like how do you actually kind of figure out what the idea is and when to start working on something yeah so look the the, the big thing i highlight a few things Sorry. so so the big thing is most of the obviously good ideas are bad ideas for a startup Right. Uh, and, and the reason is because most of the obviously good ideas, if they're obviously good ideas, they're already getting done by big companies. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and so, so what, what are big companies really good at? Like just take all the big, the top 50, whatever tech companies, what are they really good at? They're really good at doing the next obviously good idea. Mm -hmm. Right. They're, they're, you know, they're, like what's a good idea? A smartphone whose battery lasts 10% longer, you know, 
yeah, like Apple's on it, right? They, you know, they, they got like 10,000 people working on that, right? Um, like you're, there's no startup opportunity there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, you know, we always say kind of by definition, like if it's a good startup idea, it basically, it can't be a good idea that looks like a good idea because a big company's already doing that. It, it almost always has to be a um, good idea that looks like a bad idea, right? So it, so it has to be something that is, count, you know, contrarian, counterintuitive, non-obvious, Right. It, it has to be something that everybody else hasn't already figured out. It has to be important. Right. It has to matter. Right. The, the, the actual thing has to actually, you know, matter in a way that anybody's going to ever actually care about it. Um, and then, you know, going back to what we just talked about, like you have to actually be correct. Right. Like most most ideas that look like bad ideas actually are bad ideas. Right. In fact, the overwhelming majority of ideas that look like bad ideas are, in fact, bad ideas. And so you have to really be deep in the domain to be able to get to the point where you can say, OK, I know this looks like a bad idea, but. I know that I'm right for the following, you know, 18 reasons. And I know that if we do this, it will be a big, this will, this will matter. Like mm-hmm. this will make a difference. People will sit up and notice customers will say, wow, like, I can't believe, you know, somebody hasn't, hasn't done that before. Um, you know, look, the good news is the world is full of these. Like, you know, the, there's this concept in, in you know, physics of, of so we call, uh, you know, uh, uh, was it uh, path dependency, right? So <laughs> why is the world the way that it is today in any domain? It's because a lot of people who came before us basically made a lot of judgment calls and a lot of trade-offs and it evolved the school of thought in a certain way. Like, you know, they weren't perfect. Like they were smart, but they weren't perfect. They probably had blind spots. They probably made mistakes along the way. They probably didn't think about things. Um, you know, if somebody who's deep in a domain almost always knows of things that are not quite right, mm-hmm. right. Or knows of things where if they had a chance to redesign it, they would do it differently. Um, and so, you know, for people who are deep enough in a domain, they have the ability to kind of ferret those things out. And then, you know, it, it just so happens in tech, if you can ferret one of those things out and then build a product based on it, like that, that you know, that that's the foundation usually for, for a great new startup. Now, I, I know that you have a particular way of knowing when somebody is actually deep down the idea maze. And it's actually, it's actually super easy to reveal because it's so hard to fix. So how do you judge whether a founder is actually deep enough down the idea maze? Yeah. So this is, yeah. And this is, this is the thing where we just tell everybody that we tell everybody what we do and then, and then they can try to bluff us out of it. But like it, it basically, it works even when they, when they, when they know what we're doing. So, so it's, it's, the, and it turns out it's the same technique that homicide detectives use. Um, and so, Oh, yeah, yeah, this is true. So we, we use the same technique to ferret out whether founders are telling us the truth, basically, and actually have a good idea that mm-hmm. homicide cops use to determine whether you actually killed somebody. That's a um, good YouTube title. Right great there. selling point. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, here's what you, you've all seen this in movies. Actually, you probably if, if you're into crime movies, at least you've probably seen this scene in movies because it'll be in the movie occasionally, which is because what, what the homicide detective will do is basically they'll ask increasingly detailed questions, hmm. right? And so it's like, okay, whatever, you know, you're whatever, you know, whatever your friend was killed, you know, on Thursday night. Well, where, where were you Thursday night? Well, you know, I was at the movies. Uh, okay, well, um, you know, which movie theater did you go to? Okay, I was at whatever, you know, Regal Cinema, da 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 da, da. Well, who did you go to the movie with? You know, oh, oh I was by myself. Okay, uh, what time was the movie? Which movie did you see? Who starred in the movie? What was the opening scene of the movie? <laughs> what was the climax of the movie? Right? Like, and so if, and, and what happens, right, what happens is when people are guilty, when they're, try, you know, unless they're like really devious, uh, you know, when they're guilty of a crime, basically what happens is like, you know, they, they basically are making, as, as the questions get more and more detailed, they have to basically make up more and more details. Like most people can't anticipate all, the, all these right. eventualities ahead. Right. And by the way, you know, that's the whole thing. Well, then what did you do after the movie? Oh, I went out to eat. Well, which restaurant? What did you order? What was the appetizer? You know, what did you get to drink? Right. If, if you know, when we interview the waiter, is he going to say that you actually got a Diet Coke and not a, you know, not a Diet Sprite? 
right? And 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 this then this is how they they sweat a suspect. And basically, what happens is at some point, if somebody's guilty, right? At some point, basically, they they break down. Like they just they fuzz out. They can no longer give coherent answers, and, and or, or they give answers that can be easily disproven, right? Because mm-hmm. you can go check the receipt at the restaurant, and like they didn't order that thing or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or the receipt doesn't exist. Um, and so we basically do the same thing. And, and basically, uh, this is why we call it the idea maze. So the, the concept of the idea maze is to really be the master of a domain, you have to really mm-hmm. understand all of the twists and turns that require getting from kind of point A, which is like a vague idea of what you want to do, kind of all the way to point Z on the other side of the maze, which is an actual product that matters that you can build a startup around. Right. And you have to kind of, you have to actually like think your way through all those steps. Mm-hmm. Um, and the founders who are good at what they do think through, they, they, they take the time, they put in the effort, often years, right? Like I, I, what I find is it's almost always five years plus, like yeah. it, this is not like a short-term thing. It's almost always somebody, the, the great successful companies, great founders almost always have thought deeply about the domain they're operating in for five years, often 10 years, often longer. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, if, 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 if basically you just, you ask increasingly detailed questions, if the answers get more and more specific as the questions get more and more specific, that's really good. Mm-hmm. Um, if the answers get more and more in general and more and more fuzz, then it's like, okay, you know, you, you're, you're, and by the way, okay, you're trying to pull one on us. Okay. By the way, you're also trying to pull one on yourself. Yep. Right. right, like, right. It, if we can shake you out in that process, like you shouldn't be doing what you're doing anyway, because you haven't done the, you're not prepared for, you haven't done the work. You don't actually know mm-hmm. what you're doing. No. Is there, is there such a thing as a founder domain fit? Like, would you say, you know, the specific kind of founder should or should not pick a domain like this kind of thing? Or is it fairly agnostic? No. So it's often the case that there's, uh, yeah, you founder domain fit. Sometimes we use the term founder market fit, which is right. sort of a variation of, of product market fit. Um, right. Yeah. So, yeah, very much. So in, in many cases, the success cases is the founder was basically just like born to be in the domain, right? That, mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that just is who they are. It's what they spent all of their waking time thinking about. It's the entire it's the field they've worked in their entire life. It's what, you know, we our partner, Chris Dixon, it calls it, it's what you work on nights and weekends. Like it's, it's the thing that's just inherent. And one of the things we get to deal with is we get to deal with these very extreme people who like, have this kind of obsession about all kinds of you know fields of, of technology including ones that you might not think would draw people who are enthusiasts but nevertheless do like some mm-hmm. people are like really deeply into accounting software and it's just like super fantastic to yeah. like you know have them have them you know start a, a, an accounting software company um so so that's often the case having said that it's not always the case um and there are founders you know who have the skill set which is a very specific skill set and you might call it kind of the product management skill set or kind of product management on steroids where they're like really, really good at meth, you know, they have a methodology basically uh-huh. to x-ray a market, right. To basically categorize it in all kinds of different ways to, to analyze it, to learn about it. Um, Hewlett Packard was in, in its, you know, in it's, in it's, uh, in it's sort of inventive heyday, you know, back in, in the, in the sort of 1950s through the 1980s, right. they had this sort of version of this. They called this the next, they called it the next desk principle, which is basically, uh, or the, uh, sorry, next bench. So think about old engineering labs where they have like workbenches, right? Mm-hmm. One next to the other. And like we, each, each workbench is making basically the product that the next workbench takes advantage of. And so this workbench is making the microchip. That microchip then goes to the next bench. They make the calculator. The calculator is then used to design an oscilloscope. The oscilloscope is then used to design a, right. I don't know, you know, radio transmitter, like whatever. Um, right. And so each bench is building the key input for the next bench. Mm-hmm. And so then if you're, if you're what the bench that you're at, how do you discover what product to make? You go ask the people at the next bench. And, mm-hmm. and that's like a nice metaphor for basically how you do this, it's sort of the art of product management to do this in a domain you don't understand that you're not kind of a native in, which is you, you have to actually go systematically mm-hmm. learn about it. Right. You'd by, be by, surprised by and shocked. I mean, some people say how often you meet some people and they would have never actually 
thought of even talking to a customer or thought of mm-hmm. talking to somebody who would actually use it um and not they they just the thought doesn't enter their mind at all and um you know one question on this how do you sort of square this with sometimes there's a theme of maybe naivety helps a founder because sometimes if you see the 20 different ways that you can build a system and you're jaded and when the new idea shows up you're not open to it as a person then you suddenly see like a 22 year old who has no idea of the history of the space you know figure out how to actually go build this so right. how do you square being deep on the idea maze versus sometimes you know not knowing all the 100 different ways something has failed doesn't give you maybe intellectual baggage yeah so so yeah so let's start on the other side of naive naivete let's start with that first which is cynicism Um, right. So, because there's, there's a match pattern because you see exactly what you described and then you see the other side of it also, which is you see, especially like more experienced entrepreneurs who have operated in a space before and, and they become too cynical. Um, and the reason they become too cynical is because they have gone through the process of trying to make things work in that domain mm-hmm. and those things have failed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the, and the way human psychology works is when you try something and it fails, the big lesson that you learn is never try that thing ever again. Right. Like I tried to pet the saber tooth tiger. It bit my hand off. Like do not pet the tiger again. It's going to bite my other hand off. Mm-hmm. Right. It's like a very, very natural, you know, this is what we call experience. Right. right. Experience, <laughs> negative. You have some weird hobbies. What would go on? Negative <laughs> lessons. Um, there are other things you pet these days that bite your hand off. Um, and so, um, uh, so, so that's the other side. And, and, and basically what happens is like, you, you, and there are founders that are like this where they just, they just flat out get too cynical. Like they, they just, they're too negative. They have too much of a litany, too much of a history um, of basically all the things that have gone wrong. And then they basically work themselves into a state where they can't take a risk anymore. because they just like, they just, everything just seems like it's fraught with peril. Um, so that, so that's the other side of it. Um, so, so I would say like going back to naivete, I'd say there's like two kinds of naivete. There's like a, 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 a really good kind and a really dangerous kind. So mm-hmm. the dangerous kind is like, I don't know what I'm doing. And that's like a huge asset. And it's mm-hmm. like, no, it's not like, no, not even a little bit. Like you need to go learn. You need to go understand what you're doing. Like, and by the way, what do you need to learn? Like, you don't necessarily need to learn the history of like every startup that's ever tried this thing, but like you need to go learn the domain, mm-hmm. right? You need to be very, very, very deep in the technology uh, and in the market um, because just simply saying I'm naive and I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a newbie and, and it's good because I don't have all the scar tissue. It's like, well, okay, <laughs> fine. But like, what do you, what do you actually know? What actually yeah. qualifies yeah. you to make these judgment calls? Um, the good kind of naivete basically is saying, okay, look, it doesn't matter what people tried before. Um, and, and, and the reason it doesn't matter is because the, the difference in time, um, you know, when former founders tried this idea five years ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago, yeah, they failed, but you know, look, by the way, maybe they failed because they're just not very good, which is a possibility. Um, or more often, actually, they failed because like, it's just like the world wasn't ready yet. Like the, mm-hmm. the market wasn't ready yet. I'll, I'll give you an example. Right. So the, the iPhone, the concept of the iPhone was not new in 2007 release when Apple released the iPhone. Like the concept of the smartphone had been in existence for a long time. The first smartphones actually were built in the early 80s, right? 20, 25 years earlier. Um, and right. then there was a product that was very iPhone-like uh, from this company called General Magic in 1993 when I actually first came to Silicon Valley. I actually went to the General Magic launch party, launch event at Fry's Electronics in Palo Alto with, you know. Nice. We love that we store. We love Fry's, yeah. oh man. Iconic story, it was so tragic when, uh, they you know, they shut, they, it down. they shut down, but it was like, going there was like a pilgrimage. Yeah, and so this company, General, there's a documentary, this company, General Magic, and it's all these sort of Apple, you know, kind of people who built basically the iPhone in 1993. They called it the communicator, but it's basically the iPhone, and it had email, and it had like e-commerce, and it had like all these things that you have on, on apps. Like it had all this, it had all this stuff, and chat and everything else, text, you know, all this stuff. 
uh, on the thing. And it's just like, and you could use it, you could, you could buy it, you could use it. It just didn't, it, the technology wasn't ready yet. Like the, the chips weren't fast enough. The screen wasn't high resolution enough. The networks didn't have enough bandwidth. The operating system wasn't, you know, sophisticated enough. Um, and, you know, it was too big and too heavy and too thick and all, all, all you know, heat, you know, all these issues because right. it just wasn't time yet. And so the, the, again, the sort of, you know, bad form of the naivete or the, sorry, the, the cynical thing would be, okay, that was tried and failed. And therefore mm -hmm. let's never try that again. The bad naive version would be, you know, look, I'm just, I just have this idea for building a phone, but I actually don't know what goes into it. And I'm just going to like, try to like guess my way through it. The sort of smart naive version is like, look, I'm just not going to be burdened, you know, whether I know about general magic or not, I'm not going to be burdened by the scar tissue of an earlier attempt that was just at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of what happens is when these things hit, basically it's, you know, it's, it's very rarely the first founder that tried to make something work. They're often the sixth or seventh or eighth. Over yeah, the Google wasn't the first search engine, you know, for example, like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so many By the way, I think, uh, you know, some of our maybe younger listeners may, may not know this, but about over a decade ago, Mark here had a very popular blog, uh, which I suspect somebody's actually, there's been some collected words. And there's the great blog post where you talk about, there is very little difference between being wrong and being early. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's almost exactly the same. So the number um, one reason, yeah, the number one reason I, the number one reason I experienced why smart, when smart and highly qualified founders fail, the number one reason is they're too early. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just the time is not right yet. By the way, they're almost never too late. Um, it's really, really rare, uh, at least in my experience, to have a highly qualified, competent startup founder who's actually too late. You, and I say that because a lot of founders actually always feel like they're too late, right? Because they can right. kind of envision it's like, okay, this thing should exist. Oh my God, it's going to take me two years to build it. Oh, you know. Oh, yeah. Shit, or you see late. another company that just sprouted up, and you see competition, and you immediately like, you know, I've had this a couple of times where it's like, oh my God, we are dead because they're going to like. They're better funded. They're going to just out-execute us. They're just going to run faster. We're just so late into this game. Yep. I actually remember the company General Magic I described actually in 1994. So we started Netscape and, and the, they, they weren't, you know, they had this, this communicator. It wasn't selling very many. Um, and so they actually pivoted that after we, we, we kind of became prominent. They, they, General Magic pivoted and decided to become an internet software company um, oh. and actually announced that they were going to build a competitive web browser. And I was actually driving to work uh, one morning and I was listening to the news radio when that was a thing. Um, and it, it, they sort of had this announcement on the radio and I almost drove off the road, right? Because I'm like, oh my, oh my God, there's all these yeah. super geniuses at yeah. this company that we're going to have to compete with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, the rational thing is to you to feel like I, 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 you know, I just get upset. Like you feel pissed. You know, you're like, oh, how dare they come into my space? But now, in uh, retrospect, after like been through this, and I talk to a lot of founders, you realize that all of that stuff almost never matters. Um, especially if you have deep domain knowledge, you really know what your customers uh, um, are using, the how they're using it. You really know like what they're building, what they're looking to do, all of that. Uh, but also, if you can really out execute. Uh, everybody else and yeah. just like win or find a path to win it none of the competition stuff matters and i tell this to founders all the time on like just to not worry about competitors anymore yeah yeah okay. there's an old adage there's an old adage uh in venture which is more companies die by suicide than homicide oh, yeah. right right yeah. right it's it, 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 meaning like it's almost always sorry sorry to bring the mood up but um it's it's it, it, it's almost oh sorry it's for some reason we're talking a lot about homicide tonight yeah there's so much suicide and homicide conversation yeah. in this whole yeah. thing so, um, so, um, which is another thing we can get flagged for by, by YouTube on. Um, so, um, but no, look, it, it's almost always, it's almost always something internal. It's almost always something internal. When the company fails, it's almost always something internal to the company. It's some sort of internal breakdown mm -hmm. uh, or, it's, or it's some sort of exogenous factor. It, it, mm -hmm. it, it's very rarely head to head. Every once in a while, it, it does happen. Every once in a while, it's head to head competition. It's almost always some, something internal to the company. 
by the way, I think this is good. This is actually this is actually good that this is the case. It's actually helpful information to have because basically it means you have more control over your destiny than you think, mm-hmm. right? There, there's almost always something that you can do to make your company better, and that's almost always the best thing to do at any given point in time. Yeah. Right. Okay. Uh, I have a choice of two questions for you, and you can choose to answer either one. Uh, the first variant of this question is: If you're a thinking of starting a company, how should you think about finding a co-founder? Or the other question you could choose to answer is. How should you think about finding the right person to fall in love with and marry? <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> They're basically the same. <laughs> They're basically the same question. Um, I'll say this. One of the, when I was talking to Mark a couple of weeks ago, I said, like, you know, there's so much content on you on the internet about, like, startups and VC and politics. No there's, life advice? Yeah, there is no about, like, how because do Because we've fa- been talking about homicide the whole time. Yeah. Like, uh, why like, would we have life advice like, here? I want the Mark and decide, like, what do you do on the first date? Right, like, what do you do? What's anyway? That's a future. Episode. Don't kill her. Oh, 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 well, that's a good large, start. large amounts of alcohol. Yeah, okay, uh, Huberman will not approve. Slip, slip the waiter a twenty ahead of time and say, whatever you do, do not let the wine in the glass get below a certain level. Okay, all right. Uh, Andrew Huberman will not approve of this message. But okay, all right. Now, finding a co-founder or a life partner or both. So look, it's really hard. It's really hard. So well, here's another thing. Okay, so I'll just start with the dark side. This goes to the, the companies dying by suicide. It's like, I haven't run the numbers recently, but it's like half or more of even the companies that work have some sort of founder split, founder divorce. We, we actually use the term founder divorce because it, it, it is what it's like. Um, and so it, it is actually really rare to have a sort of a coherent, um, you know, sort of um, uh, founder team that survives, you know, 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. Right. Um, and by the way, half the time when you think they have that, it actually they hated each other the entire time and you don't find it out until years later there was a famous moment in the tech industry where paul paul allen wrote his book right um uh, paul allen wrote his uh co-founder of microsoft wrote yeah. his autobiography it's like 35 years after they started the company he says this autobiography drops and it literally just like matter of factly tells this incredible story of like bill gates trying to screw him out of his stock and about how he's hated gates ever since and like literally they went for like 30 years pretending they liked each other and the entire time. Wow. Wow. The entire time, Paul Allen's thinking, someday I'm going to write the book and I'm going to tell the truth <laughs> and I'm going to nuke this guy. Oh, man. Um, so, like, you know, even storied, you know, things like that, it actually turns out that they're, you know, and, and look, why is that? It's like, okay, look, partnerships are hard. Marriages are hard. Like people working together against a common objective under enormous amounts of stress, mm-hmm. right? It's very hard. Like one of the things about the startup experience you know, much like a marriage, it's like, look, you're gonna, you're gonna, your relationship with your founder or your co-founders is gonna come, uh, you're gonna come under so much stress. Like, <laughs> you're gonna see the real person, right? Like, wh- right. what stress does is it like strips people down, right. and like their core personality comes out, right? Because right. all the artifice and all the polish and all the stuff, you know, the little acts that everybody puts on to kind of get along in the world and kind of be friendly and so forth, and try to yeah. not have people, you know, realize that they're secretly kind of assholes uh, or like deeply insecure or like you know deeply arrogant or like you know. Oh, it's true. All of this is true. It's just, I mean, you just it all comes out. You admitted that yeah. you know that you just think everyone's so nice. I, I'm just yeah. saying, Mark has run into some really bad, weird people. No, this. Oh this no, is no, 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 no. They, they are. They are. No, look, it's everybody. It's. Every, I mean, look, I'm talking about myself. 
Um, like, you know, it looked, you just, you get the, you get the dark version of people under stress. You just get the dark version. And, you know, yeah. look, some people, some people are, you know, some people are great. Like, you know, it's some, for some people that's fine and it works out and it's great. And, you know, look, sometimes you get really lucky and people actually really bond together. You get, you get the foxhole effect where people really, you know, develop a huge amount of trust in each other and they, they learn they can really rely on each other. And they learn that, you know, each of them is looking out for the other person. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that's the positive case and that's what you want. And then a lot of times you get the opposite, which is like, wow, like this person mm -hmm. really is not a good person to work with. And I wish mm -hmm. I'd known that ahead of time. Anyway, I, I go through are, the are there version like of that. warning signals that you look at for companies. Yeah, I mean, so I, I, you know, the big thing is I, I think there's there's very little substitute for just basically time, right? Like a lot of right. it is like how how well do you actually know the person? Like, have you right. you know have you actually? And then have you have you seen them under stress? Mm -hmm. um, you know, do you know other people who have seen them under stress? Have you mm -hmm. been able to go through projects together? Right. Like, you know, look, a lot of times, like you know, some so a lot of these stories are like stories of like college, you know, friends from college, like college classmates. Yeah. You know, maybe they were in like intense classes together, and they had to do projects together, and they learned to really rely on each other. Um, and then, you know, some of it's just time. Like there, there's this concept yeah. of kind of founder dating or founder matchmaking, which is like, right. I want to start a company. I need to find a co-founder. I'm going to ask yeah. a bunch of people. I'm going to go on a bunch of like blind founder dates and I'm going to partner up with somebody. Yeah. And it's like, what do you, it's, you know, it's, it'd be like, you know, speed, you know, it's like a speed marriage. It's the same problem, right? It's like, okay, yeah. who am I getting? I don't know. Yeah, no, I, I get that all the time. Like I get people reaching out to me like, do you know a co-founder who I can go work with. And I'm like, no, you're doing, that's not the way yeah. this, this works. Like that's just YC application has a one question, which is how long have the founders known each other? Which I always thought was an interesting question because I think to your point, time is like probably the one thing that can kind of tell you whether this is kind of a stable relationship or whether it'll make it. And even that is like not, you know, it's not hundred percent, but it's the closest indicator of whether the startup, uh, the co-founders will actually get along. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this is, an, this is another reason, again, even in the world of kind of the post COVID world of more remote work, this is another really good reason to try to get to a hub. Um, mm -hmm. and the reason to get to a hub and then, and then specifically on top of that, get to a hub and then, and then actually work for like, work for a bigger company. Like I think a lot of founders actually are, are better off when they've, when they've worked at a bigger company first. And it's not because at a bigger company, you're going to learn how to start a company. It's because you have two really things that you can get out of working at a bigger company. If you're an aspiring future founder, one is you can use it as an excuse to learn the domain. Mm -hmm. Right. And so you, you can get really deep and you can become an expert in the, in the, in the field. Um, and then the other is like, you can, you know, you want to keep your eyes peeled and you basically want to figure out, okay, who around here is like really good, right? Who does everybody else want to work with? Well, okay, I'll give you an example. So, so there's this thing in any company of any size, sometimes called the Matthew effect, which is like this mathematical principle that you think doesn't work, but it actually does work almost hundred percent of the time, which is basically um, the square root of the number of people in a company uh, accomplish half of the output, right? Um, and so if the, the company has route. the square root, right? right? <laughs> and so just to run the basic numbers on that, a ten, you know, a lot of mid-sized tech companies, you know, are like 10,000 employees, um, you know, square root of 10,000 is 100. Um, and so there are hundred people in that company that like do half the work. Right. Uh -huh. and, and it's not like the other, you know, 99,900 do like no work. It's just, they do the other half of the work. Right. Um, and so there's always some set of people running around in any company that are like actually the aces that actually, you know, and, and by the way, like everybody knows who they are. This is the other great thing is like, it doesn't, doesn't really matter what job titles they have. It doesn't matter actually what level yeah. they are in the yeah. hierarchy. It's just, they're the people who get stuff done and they're the people everybody else goes to. Mm -hmm. Um, and like though, that's your best case scenario. Like those are your future co-founders. Like if you can pair up with one of those and build a deep relationship and work together and really get to know each other in that context, that's, if you reverse engineer this, that's, that's often what's happened by the time they come and see us. Yep. Yep. Okay. Um, tough times and chewing glass. So, you know, the other, I think theme about founders is, uh, 
you know, sometimes companies don't work or sometimes they go through long periods where things don't work. You know, maybe you're running out of money. Maybe, you know, your all your customers are quitting you. Maybe the graph is going down uh, in the wrong direction. And you, you know, uh, have been part of companies which have gone through lean stretches. Like Ben talks about, you know, some of that obviously in mm -hmm. his book. So for people watching this where things are not going well, and this may be because they are a founder, maybe they're an exec, maybe there's a, you know, you know, uh, uh, like more you know, individual contributor, like how should they think about going through tough times? Yeah. So look, you know, the, the sort of culture of Silicon Valley has kind of been suffused over the last couple of decades with this idea of failing fast. Hmm. Um, and so there's just, you know, kind of this general idea of something's not working, like there's all this opportunity cost and you should kind of punch out and do something else. Um, and, you know, look, there's very smart people who kind of articulate this point of view, you know, kind of, you know, Eric Reese most famously with, with the Lean Startup uh, book and methodology. Um, and, you know, look, there's something to it, right? Which is like, okay, if something's not working, like, you know, how much of your life do you want to spend pounding away at something that, that isn't going to work? Um, and, you know, a lot of companies pivot and modify their strategies along the way. Um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a role there. Um, having said that, I, I incline, I, or maybe just say, I've seen greater success come from the opposite approach, which is basically like all, almost, but not quite blind stubbornness. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, this is where we use the, the term courage very deliberately, which is basically like, look, I am not. Yeah. So, um, actually it's, um, it's Elon Musk had the great quote. Um, uh, he said, uh, I forget what it is, but it's, it's on, it's, you can Google it. He said, uh, uh, something, something, something. It was like SpaceX rockets kept blowing up or whatever. Um, and he's, he finally got upset and it's like a famous email. And he says, as, as with, with God as my witness, I am going to make this work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. <laughs> Failure is not an option, right. right? Like we are going to keep pounding away at this until we get this to work. And, and actually it is the story of SpaceX. Like there's actually, there's a video actually on YouTube. Here's, here's an inspiring video to watch. There's a video on YouTube, which is a compilation video of every failed SpaceX launch. I've seen that. Before, yeah. Right. Before they had the first successful one. And it yeah. is rocket after rocket after rocket after rocket exploding yeah. yeah but that's actually amazing visual because for a lot of companies you don't have like kaboom right like you know you feel it. it's like you know maybe people don't use that button or sign up or you know they don't respond to a salesperson but like you literally see they call it in i think what is it a rapid unplanned disassembly which i felt like such a polite way <laughs> of saying. saying like it just went kablooey uh, and blew up uh, uh but it is so dramatic yeah. And look, they almost lost the company. Like, you know, who wants yeah. to invest in a company when the rockets keep blowing up? And there, yeah. there were points where they almost lost the company. Um, Even the Elon Musk biography, I remember reading this and Shriram knows this. Um, I, I usually listen to the books when I'm going on these long runs. And I was running around like San Francisco. And uh, I think right at the point where I think the sixth or seventh launch where it actually like worked. I, I just had to like stop the run and I, I I think I just had this moment of like, holy shit, he made this. Like I know the story obviously, but it is just, I think what people outside don't get about like Silicon Valley and Elon Musk is it is so hard to not root for this guy, right? I mean, the, the things, just the sheer perseverance that he can demonstrate and just the punishment that he can take, but he will just not give up. There's just, it's just so admirable. Yeah. He should have lost both of the, both Tesla and SpaceX. He should have lost them. They both should have gone under. They both should have gone under multiple times. Yeah. Um, with, I think, basically any other founder, I think they both probably would have gone under. Um, right. And he just simply, I mean, part of it, he's really smart. Uh, part of it is he had great teams. And then part of it is he just would not quit. Mm -hmm. Right. And then, by the way, not quitting, like, is infectious, right? Like, the, the, when, when you have a leader, right, with, with that attitude, right, yeah. at the head of the company, like, mm -hmm. that's a big deal.
Mm -hmm. Right. Another, by the way, there, there's actually here you can draw in like military, you know, this is, you know, a, a parallel domain that has a lot of the same kinds of things. But if you read accounts of like great battles and great generals and, you know, you know, heroic military, you know, accomplishments under fire, under literal fire, you know, a lot of it is, is there a leader? Right. And by the way, it, it doesn't even, you know, in, in, in military terms, it's often not even the officer. It's like the, you know, the, the NCO is the sergeant. And they're just like not going to let the mission fail. They're not going to leave, you know, they're not going to leave people behind. They're not going to mm -hmm. let, you know, like they're you know, going to say it's just they're, they're going to make it happen. Um, right. the, the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps has a the, well, the sort of a motto or slogan of the Marine Corps um, is um, uh, improvise, adapt and overcome. Okay. Um, and it's basically just like, look, no excuses. Like something is not working. You're on a mission. You're out there trying to make something happen. And like, yeah. you know, your boat, like, you know, whatever your boat breaks or like whatever happens or your gun jams or whatever it is, <laughs> improvise, adapt and overcome, mm -hmm. right. And get it done. Right? Um, right. And if that doesn't work, improvise, adapt and overcome again. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. And, 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 and just keep going. Um, and so, you know, is there ever is all... such a thing for a founder as like persevering too much? Yeah, it happens. It happens. And so, um, you know, the, the sort of extreme form of this, um, which you do see from time to time, um, is it, it, the short shorthand version is it's like year six, year seven, year eight, year nine of something not working. Right. So so like the basic framework I would use is like basically any tech startup um, it basically has like a five year kind of opportunity. Um, and by the way, you know, again, some, some people argue about that. Some people would say it's three or four, but I would say like it's, it's five. I've, I've seen people pull it out over a five year uh, kind of period. Um, but there's like a five year runway, right? Um, and, and, and then the problem is basically beyond year five, um, if there aren't tangible signs of progress and success, you just have a very hard time holding the team, right? Mm -hmm. And so what happens is morale, kind of coherence, the culture uh, starts to go. And then literally, you know, look, people have choices. And so your, your best people are able to, to, to leave and go somewhere else. And some, at some point, people like lose faith. Um, now, look, you know, some founders will even keep going after that. Um, you know, so every once in a while, they'll pull it out in year seven, eight, nine, ten. Um, by the way, you also have these kind of what I describe as the slow burn companies. Like you have, mm -hmm. com you have some companies that just take 10, 15, 20 years to hit critical mass. Um, and, um, you know, they just, they're, they're building, building, building over a long period of time. And then it does ultimately work. Usually it's like a five year kind of thing. Uh, mm -hmm. okay. And then here, here'd be the other side of the argument that draw the military analogy, Sun Tzu and the art of war. Like his argument for this is he says, like, at some point, the army has to win, <laughs> right? right? Like, right. <laughs> like armies will fight for a while, right. uh, but at some point they have to start achieving victories or, or again, you just, you, you can't maintain, maintain the coherence. So I, I think that's the other side of it. But, but look, the fail fast thing basically says quit way before that happens, right? The mm -hmm. fail fast thing just basically mm -hmm. says like, look, we're just trying to like run an experiment and we're trying to cut our losses. The problem with the fail fast strategy is you, and you, you, you know, there are founders who spend their lives doing the fail fast strategy. The problem is it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a risk minimization framework, right? That has the effect of basically preventing success, right? Because okay. what it basically means, you know, taken to its limit is you, you never stick to any one thing long enough to make it work. And, I, I, and it, it is a shame. There are people who do that. It, it is a shame to see that when they do that because it's like, you know, they might, look, they might have been a year away or two years away, but they might have had a chance of greatness and they just pulled the plug too quickly. I think yep. the, the challenge with, I think the fail fast approach is often very closely tied to the incredible rapid prototyping approach. And I, you know, look, there's so much- The blitz scaling? Yeah, well, no, it's more like rapid iteration and there's so much value to rapid iteration and prototyping. But I think one of the challenges is you get stuck in the local maxima. Mm. And sometimes, you know, like, Technology problems like take years to figure out, right? Yeah. Like, for example, if you look at Tripio, you know, we are about like seven, eight years into Ethereum and, you know, like 13, 14, 15 years into Bitcoin. And these things take years to play out. Mm -hmm. And there is no like fail fast with Bitcoin where somebody tries out and kills it and tries a different version. They take years to kind of like bake and have built community. 
And I think sometimes founders, when they take this advice of rapid prototyping, iteration, kill it, they get stuck in the local maxima of the idea exploration space. And sometimes you need like, you know, the jump where you need to kind of like hill climb and randomize and using generic algorithm terms to kind of go totally right. somewhere else and right. take some time to figure it out. Yeah. There's also two other, yeah, I, I agree with all that. And then I'd say there's two other kind of dichotomies that people should think about. So one is use of data versus not, right? Mm. Data versus judgment. Mm -hmm. um, and so like what you often see with the companies that iterate is they're, they're iterating. And then on top of that, they're using data, mm -hmm. right? And, and then again, the consequence of that is like, you know, may, may, maybe the data is not actually useful for inferring actually what's actually going to be helpful to get you to success. And maybe you're actually spending too much time optimizing right. the short-term metrics in addition to doing short-term short product revisions. And so there, there's there's this tension trade-off between do we use data and measure like how things are going or do we use intuition and judgment? Mm -hmm. And, and you know, and, and I think an absolutist view on that is probably dangerous. Um, you know, the answer is probably somewhere in the middle for, for most people. Um, the other is, by the way, do we talk to customers, um, right? Um, and, and you mentioned this earlier, like th there there is sort of an extreme kind of point of view that some founders have, which is like, I'm not going to talk to customers. I'm going to, you know, Steve Jobs wouldn't talk to customers. Like, I'm just going to like, I'm going to make it up in my own head and people are going to want it. Like, I don't mm -hmm. need to go talk to them ahead of time. And then, and then look, there's a, there's a degenerate behavior in the other direction, which is people who talk to customers too much. Yeah. Um, and they go to the customer and they ask, what product should I build? And yep. the problem is that the customers don't know because the customers aren't in the business of building new products. Yeah. So they don't know what they want. Like in, this is a, actually a Steve, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, nobody, nobody wanted the Macintosh before they built the Macintosh. You couldn't yeah. even, you know, they couldn't conceive of it. I think the mistake is to treat customers as PMs. Yeah, right. And be like, hey, you you prioritize this whole thing for me and tell me what I, I should go do. No, that's your job. Like, yeah. that's not their job to tell you. It's actually especially dangerous. You know, my, a lot of my background is in social media, where, you know, your customers often be your loudest users, um, um, but they're not often representative of the next marginal person. Well, <laughs> uh, well this is why, like, at Twitter, I actually sent emails saying we should ignore everything Mark says, right? Because the number of people... That, that explains a lot right there. That explains a lot. Uh, yeah, well, that, that explains a lot, but let's not get into that, right? Like a lot, like a lot of current events. But, uh, 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 you know, I'm going to get in trouble over this. But, okay, I want to get back to, you know, so I think... Outside of YouTube demonetization, we have a lot of other things oh, to yeah, worry yeah, about yeah, now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We may need to hold this video for a while. Um, but you said, you know, data and intuition and pick a spot in the middle. I actually want to challenge you. I think what I've seen is most companies are at one end of the spectrum, right? And let's take two companies which we are not involved with. Like one is say Google and Apple. Like Google, you know- I is, thought you were going to say Facebook because- Well, I was going to pick companies that we're not involved with, right? Like, but you know, I think Facebook's kind of in the similar, like extremely data oriented, lots of graphs, lots of metrics. Let me use it right. Like, so when, you know, I grew up in Facebook culture and Facebook is amazing. And, you know, kind of the reason I have my career in Silicon Valley, and they're incredibly data oriented, you know, lots of amazing data science, et cetera. And then I remember going to Snap, um, which is incredibly intuition design based. And I remember being like, oh, I've gone from a culture where there'll be entire meetings, there'll be no words on slides. It'd be only graphs, only numbers. There won't be an English word. And then you, I went to a culture where, you know, also building incredible product, but there'll be no numbers. It'd be only pictures, right? And they both work, but they're both next to And I think Google and Apple is another end of the extreme. So I actually think, there is actually no good middle ground. And usually companies path dependent find one of the extremes. Yeah, I don't know. Is there no good middle ground? Like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't, well, let me put it this way. Look, if you've got somebody, and there are people like this, if you've got somebody where they're just like the magic product designer, then yeah, maybe you should just get out of the way and let them do their thing. Mm -hmm. 
most of us normal human beings, like we're, you know, we might be pretty good at it, um, but it's still like helpful to go talk to customers. Yeah. Um, it's still helpful to look at data. Um, I uh, I, I, I the other way around, like if, if people only, if people only talk to customers and only look at data, you know, you do question whether they're ever going to have any kind of breakthrough. Yeah. Right. I, I also think uh, maybe one framework could be like, if it is a total zero to one product, then there's not a ton of data that's going to help you right off the bat or like talk to customers, but optimizations on top of it or like feature extension stuff that you're adding that I think should be much more data driven. Like mm -hmm. I think uh, that one, you have to be a little bit more disciplined about, is it actually moving the needle? Like, why are you doing all of this? Like all the growthy optimization things, I think it's going to be really hard to do it without looking at data pretty obsessively. Yep. Uh, by the way, one thing I'd say is one of the things I've kind of learned from, you know, last year and a half here is that things which often look weird, but seem to be working, we want to pay attention to mm. just because there's something there. Mm. Um, things which seem almost too obvious, they often work out and there's like probably a great business there. But it's I often find that if pattern matching on companies which have really worked well and things have seen working, if something seems weird and is working, there is something that maybe it's not that company, maybe it's not that founder, but there is something there that is worth paying attention yeah. to. Yeah. So for example, I would, you know, uh, you know, let's use the example outside crypto. Like if you look at say a lot of the uh, AI stuff coming about, like you know, the early days of prompt engineering was just kind of like weird but interesting, and a lot of interesting people. Um, or with crypto, you had like all these interesting artists doing things which look different than anything. But but okay, all right, I want to switch gears a little bit, um, and we're going to talk about uh, books. So let me quickly share screen. Ooh, fancy let's, functionality. Uh, we have fancy new software over here. Prepare to be blown away. It's called share screen. All right. Okay. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, you wrote a, uh, 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 a tweet thread, which I think everyone should go and read. And in there, you had a bunch of book recommendations, right? By the way, there was some criticism of why there are so many books. It's too hard to read those, blah, 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 right? Like, you know, Also, what did you mean when you actually recommended a specific book? What does it say about you? Too hard. All too, of those. Yeah. You, 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 what, what, you just made it like, you know, like, you know, like two books or something. But anyway, uh, uh, but anyway so I want to actually maybe, you know, go through, uh, you know what, like, you know what we, we don't need the screen. We can just talk, look at Mark. Okay. I'm going to go to three books, which I know you're a big fan of, right? And I want to maybe talk about like why you look at three books. Okay, so let's start with uh, Ancient City. Yeah. The Ancient City. So The Ancient City. So The Ancient City is a fascinating book. So it was actually, it's an old book. It was written in the 1860s by, uh, at the time, a top professor at the, at the Sorbonne in, you know, uh, in, the, in, in France. Uh, and uh, this guy was an expert on the Greeks and the Romans. Um, and by expert, I mean, he apparently knew everything. He was like some sort of savant. Um, this book is basically, it's, it's exhaustively footnoted, um, and has citations all over the place. And they're all, all of the citations are to original Greek and Roman sources. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's like this guy, like mainlined, apparently like everything the Greeks and Romans ever wrote and like synthesized mm -hmm. it. And what he was looking for, what he describes in the book is what he's looking for is he was, he was trying to use Greek and Roman original sources to try to reconstruct what society was like before the Greeks and Romans. Right. Because we have like extensive like written documentation for how Greek society worked and how Roman society worked. We do not have extensive documentation for how pre-Greek and Roman societies worked. Right. Um, and it, the, in the in the in the in the in the sort of history of it, this is sort of the Indo-European societies that, that basically predate, predated the Greeks and the Romans. And so and this is like basically societies before 4000 years ago would be the way to think about this. Um, and so and, and he basically and, and basically what he said was, look, the Greeks and the Romans like had memories of this, like they came out of these this this earlier culture. 
this mm-hmm. early Indo-European culture. And then they basically, basically, he said, my theory is they, they preserve these memories in the forms of their literature, mm-hmm. right? Because in describing their own societies, they were also describing the societies they came out of. And so he kind of abstracted out of that, right? What was sort of the original structure of society? And, and it's right. specifically Western society. I don't, I don't actually know. I don't know enough about Eastern societies to know if it's the same applies to Eastern societies, but it's sort of the, the core basis of the original Western, Western society, Western culture. And, and that's why the, the title of the book is called The Ancient City, Right. Because the city was like the peak form of political and social organizing at that time. Anyway, TLDR, the original society was best thought of in modern terms as a fascist communist cult. (laughs) Um, And so take the strongest possible form of fascism you can imagine, couple it with the strongest possible form of communism you can imagine, and then wrap it in the strongest possible religious cult that you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And that, and that, and that was the original form of society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so fa- fa- as we go through these just quickly in sequence. So the, the fascist aspect of it was like, just like an, inc- no concept of individual rights. Like right. even the Greeks didn't have a concept of in- individual rights. Even the Romans basically didn't, it, you know, that emerged much, much later, mm-hmm. but in like in, in, in the ancient city, there was no concept of individual, individual the individual had no rights. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, the, you know, the head of the household had complete life or death authority over the entire household. The head of the tribe had complete life or death authority over the tribe, and the head of the city had complete right. life or death authority over the um, uh, over, over everybody in the city. So, so like extremely like fascist, dictatorial, mm-hmm. um, uh, communist. Like they didn't have market economies. They didn't have you know all the stuff that you know whatever. Um, and so basically, and you know the, these were all small. All the all the political units were small. Families, mm-hmm. tribes, or cities. They were all small. And so basically they all had communist economics, right? Which, which was a big problem, by the way, because mm-hmm. they had all the problems that result from, from a right. communist economic system, but it's all they knew how to do. Um, and then cult, which is they were literally religious cults. Um, and, and every family had its own cult with its own gods. Every tribe had its own uh, uh, cult with its own gods. Every city had its own cult with its own gods. And they were serious about the, the, the gods. And in fact, what would actually end up happening was if you were in one city and you encountered somebody from another city, you had a moral obligation to kill them on sight um, because they represented uh, enemy gods. Um, right. And so your God demanded of you that you kill the representative of the enemy God, like at, 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 that, at that kind of deep level of kind of primal drive uh, mm-hmm. of this destruction of the other. Um, and so it's like, okay, it's like, that's like a level of intensity. Sounds a lot like Twitter today. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this is the breakthrough that I had. This is the kind of conceptual breakthrough that I had reading this book, because basically the way that we're all taught how society evolved is that it like used to be super crude and like barbarous and primitive. And then over time, it's gotten basically better and better and more and more perfect and more and more figured out and more and more clear and more and more powerful. And like, we could build much bigger societies and, you know, we introduced all these, you know, right, all, rights and, and sort of all these things. And so we, kind of the story we get told is this concept of Whig history, uh, which is basically this concept of like, we, we've been arcing towards greater and greater levels of sophistication and perfection right. and morality over time. Um, you know, then there's something to that, like that, you know, mm-hmm. that's a very, you know, a lot, a lot of people believe that for, you know, prob- you know, good, good and valid reasons. But there is another way of interpreting what's happened, which is the opposite interpretation, which is the original, the, the ancient city was like super strong. It was like incredibly intense in every possible way that it could be intense. And basically ever since then, we've been diluting. 
Hmm. Right. Um, we we it, it basically the, what's been happening is we've been taking those original forms of so, social formation, political structure, and we've been diluting. We've been weakening, progressively weakening them over time. We've been taking what used to be all these strong bonds and we've been turning them into weak bonds. We've been taking all these very strict, you know, organizing organizing principles and kind of blowing them up. You know, we've been you know, we used to have these incredibly. Like, and again, think about a religion so intense that if you meet somebody from the other religion, you feel morally obligated to kill them as compared to how we think about religion today, which is like, wow, it's Sunday, it's time to go to church, right? Like <laughs> our experience of religion today is like a billionth of the level of intensity of, of how they experienced it, right? Right. Um, and so so we today, through that perspective, and, and then the, the question I ask, right, is if they were judging us, what would they think, right? And, mm -hmm. and of course, the answer is they would think we've completely lost our minds, mm -hmm. right? They, they, they would not even believe that we think that we can function in society with, this, with the, weak, the, the weak ties and the weak religions and the weak forms of social structure that we have today. And, mm -hmm. and, and like, and, you know, by the way, like, you know, when we judge them, are we right? Or when they judge us, are, are we right? Like, you know, maybe the answer is somewhere in the middle, but, you know, maybe the world's not actually on an arc towards continuous improvement. Maybe there were actually valuable things in how societies used to be structured. Um, and uh, maybe we should at least understand where we came from when we try to figure out where we're going. Okay, I think this also ties in the theme of, you know, kind of reading history from, you know, and uh, also maybe written like over 100 years ago. Okay, mm -hmm. book two. Uh, but by the way, if I could, yes. yeah. cults, like they're still all around us. Yeah, Go right? on. Well, that's true. <laughs> well, every religion, every religion is a diluted, D-I-L-U-T-E-D, diluted. Mm -hmm. Every religion that we have today is a diluted form of a cult. Every country that we have is a diluted form of a cult, right? We have a national, you know, national myths. We have national, you know, sort of concept of civic religion, national belief system, political myths. Um, every company is a cult, yeah. right? Every company is every company is it's basically it's it's a it, like if if you teleported somebody from four thousand years ago to today and you took them to Apple and you said what do you see and they would say well it's obviously it's a cult like <laughs> there's the cult leader. So I, I don't think using the word cult in necessarily a negative form. There's something about myth making and conformity and you know kind of bringing people together around a cause where yeah. you can draw a straight line from say a very active Discord server or what a popular YouTube influencer is able to do with their audience all the way to, you know, something a few thousand years ago. Yeah, yeah, in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the language of the ancient city, these are all cults, like these, these right. are all cults. Right. Like the modern use of the word cult is, is you know, we, we, we have this very micro definition of cult, which is like, right. you know, whatever, a, a mic, sort of, basically what does cult mean in, in kind of modern parlance? It's like a fake new religion, yeah. uh, right? right. As, com as compared to the all presumably real old religion. Uh, let, let me ask you a spicy question. If Mark Andreessen was starting a cult, what would that cult have to do and believe in? Don't you? I mean, you already have the answer. You're in it. <laughs> uh, Mark, I just thought you were going to say my religion will require sacrifice. Of course it requires, of course, all religions require sacrifice. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Someday our uh, our daughter has to, you know, be taken away from us, right? Like, that's the deal. Uh, uh, wow. Yeah. We have the, no, 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 we have the diluted form. I, my, my version, my, my cult is a very diluted form of what my predecessor 4,000 years ago would have had. Yeah, she only has to listen to Mark's uh, podcast. Um, but, uh, appropri appropriately so. There we go. Okay, okay, book two. <laughs> book two. Uh, uh, the Machiavellians by Burnham. Yeah. So actually, there's two books by Burnham I, I referenced. The Machiavellians is, is actually stronger on, um, it's, it's very good on politics, political theory, political structure, um, sort of political power. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that. The, the other book, the, the Managerial Revolution, is actually even more relevant, I think, to, right. Um, right. to kind of uh, the, the kind of world that we live in. And maybe I could touch on that one if that's yeah. okay. Yeah. 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 So the Managerial Revolution, um, basically what, so Burnham was this very interesting character where he was actually a very hardcore communist at one point. 
Um, and uh, he actually was such a such a he was an American sort of activist and, and, and leader in the American sort of Communist Party. And he was such a communist that he was a personal friend and colleague and co-worker of Leon Trotsky. Right. Which is like how you've known you've made it as a communist in the 1920s is like you're hanging out with Trotsky. Yeah. Um, and so um, he was like a super communist. And then he actually broke from communism in the in the like 30s and 40s and got in a big fight with Trotsky got out the other side. He ultimately later on, he became very right wing in his, in his later years, but the managerial revolution is kind of written kind of right at the turning point where he was in the process of going from communism to, uh, you know, kind of from, from the far left to kind of the, to, to kind of the right. So he was kind of rethinking a lot of things. And of course, 1940 was also this really kind of critical moment in kind of world history, which is, it was when like world war II kind of got, you know, fully engaged and, and right. And at that time it was, you know, there was this battle basically of these three political systems, <laughs> the three cults, right. Mm -hmm. our, our three cults <laughs> of that era. Right. And they were fascism, right. Mm -hmm. uh, communism. Um, and then, you know, the sort of the one that the sort of flowed from kind of the, you know, Judeo-Christian kind of tilt in the culture, which is, you know, liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. um, right. Um, and so, and, and, you know, World War II was kind of this three-way battle that then, you know, and then ultimately, you know, we teamed with the communists, we defeated the fascists. Then other things happen, but like it, it, this was a very live kind of question of like, okay, how are these systems? And, and this was on the heels of the Great Depression, right? And so there was right. a very widespread belief throughout much of the world that like capitalism had failed uh, and therefore liberal democracy had failed. And that's why a lot of people, including a lot of people in the West, had bought into either fascism or communism. So anyway, so he was in this swirl when these were like very, very live topics. Um, and then he did this very interesting thing, which is he actually abstracted all three of those systems and said they actually all have something really important in common which is they're all what he called managerial in nature. And what managerial meant basically was all three societies were basically predicated on the idea that basically that these societies were gonna be very large and very complex, right? Like quite literally operating on like national and global scales. And that there was basically in all three kinds of societies, there was basically the emergence of basically an elite leadership class Mm -hmm. Right. Th that were not necessarily like the owners of the property. Right. You know, not like an old aristocracy where they just own all the land. Mm -hmm. It's not like having a king. Right. Of a, of a small kingdom. It's not like even having a priest who's like in charge of religion. It's something else. Right. It's like the commissars of the Soviet Union. It's like, you know, the high, you know, the Nazi high command that kind of controls all society. And then in a liberal democracy, it's the government, you know, the government, right? And so it's the political leaders, the House of Representatives, the Senate. Mm -hmm. um, and then he actually looked at companies also. And he said, look, the same thing's happening with companies, which is basically um, th there was an old model of capitalism that he called bourgeois capitalism, mm -hmm. which basically was like, think like the Henry Ford model of capitalism, right? Where mm -hmm. like Henry Ford starts a car company, names it after himself, mm -hmm. owns the car company, controls the car company, like makes all the decisions. And then, you know, Burnham said there's also this new form of, of capitalism he called managerial capitalism, which basically says, you know, the founder either was not capable of scaling the company or the founder's gone. And now the company's run by this professional management class. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and by the way, and we know these people today, right? These are people who go to business school. These are, you know, VPs of product and, uh, you know, VPs of product at companies we know. Yeah, exactly. Like, and, and so basically what Burnham said is everybody thinks that this is like a fight between fascism, communism, and liberal democracy. And he said, it, it is like that, that is what's happening. But he said, no matter which of these win, the result is going to be a managerial society. It's going to be a society that's run by an elite class of professional managers. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that elite class of professional managers is going to be disintermediated from the actual population. Like they're, they're going to hold themselves above the population. They're going to right. think that they know best, even when they don't. They're going to have a new kind of educational background with you right. know, things like business schools or, by the way, schools of government. Right. You know, mm -hmm. they're, they're you know, the Kennedy School at Georgetown, like trains people to basically run societies. Mm -hmm. um, and they're going to have these technical skills, these sort of technical skills, these management skills 
where they're going to know how to administer these large organizations and these large societies in ways that basically people with who don't have those skills are not going to be able to do. And so kings are going to go away and religious leaders are going to go away. And by the way, entrepreneurs are going to go away, right? There's no more role for Henry Ford. There's no more role for Thomas Edison. There's no more role for, you know, instead it's going to be basically, everything's going to be large scale. Everything's going to be mass manufacturing. Everything's going to be mass media. It's going to be mass politics. It's going to be mass religion. And then you're going to have this managerial class that's mm -hmm. going to run all these mass systems. And he basically said, like, that, that's our future. He said, basically, there's a really big downside to it, which is, like, are these people actually going to represent the best interests of the people that they're managing? Because, right. like, once they're in charge, it's going to be really hard to get them out. Right. Um, but he said, look, he said there's an inevitability to it, which is, like, the, the world has gotten too big. Um, and, and, you know, at, at countries at the scale they're going to be at or companies they are going to be at the scale at, you're going to need this management class. Mm -hmm. I go through all this to basically say this then is the lens that I, I now provide basically for what we do in venture capital, what we do in startups, which basically the way to think about it is the big companies like the Fortune 500 and the big tech companies are they, they are in this new model of managerial capitalism. Right? Mm -hmm. And to your point, Sri Ram, it's like you can very clearly see that because you just like you, you read the executive biographies mm -hmm. and it's like, you know, and you see it. It's like, you know, Harvard Business School, Stanford Business School, you know, McKinsey, Goldman Sachs. You know, it's like all the, you know, you know, Obama administration. It's all the markers of people who have kind of been in this elite management kind of role. Mm -hmm. And now and now they're running these companies. Um, what we do is we fund the throwbacks. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and, 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 and right. Elon Musk, again, we'll just use Elon's example. Elon's the throwback. Elon's the throwback to Henry Ford. Um, you know, he is a throwback to the prior era of what Burnham called bourgeois capitalism, which is basically owner, proprietor, right, dictator, mm -hmm. right, of, of, of the company. And so basically, and, and, and why do we do this? It's because companies that are run in the managerial mode don't do new things. Mm -hmm. right why do they not do new things because managers don't do new things like the whole point of being a manager is that you don't expose yourself to the kind of risk that's involved in doing new things you yep. just like try to basically stay in that control job for as long as possible i think so the world needs the world needs the world needs the bourgeois capitalist model and they need the the, the entrepreneurs to, to to actually do what they do for anything new to happen and so right. we we basically keep that we keep we keep basically the original form of capitalism alive yeah so a couple of reactions one i think Bernard Macri says in his book is that uh, the managerial class is interested almost solely or dominantly by the preservation of themselves right, and right. i think yeah. so that's right. kind of one of these things but maybe sometimes when people you know read this or listen to this you know and they look around you know at the linkedin profile you know and they're like well i am one of them right yes. so I, I guess you know how should you know, well yeah right like how, how do you live with yourself i was i mean we're getting deep here right like, uh, 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 you're just very politely asking that question but yes i guess you know if you are not elon if you're not a founder what should you take away from this yeah, well, so the big yeah. So first of all, there are three members of the managerial elite on this on this on this on this uh, on this video, right? So like right. we 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 are this, right? <laughs> and, and 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 if you read, by the way, if you read, you want to read these books together because if you read the Machiavellians, what you'll learn is politically, right. structurally, what this is is it's an oligarchy, yeah. um, and so we, we are we we are members in good standing in the in the in the, in the modern in the sort of modern uh, you know kind of Western oligarchy. Um, and yeah, the, the, olig the oligar oligarchies have this character that Burnham describes in, in actually both books. He describes just oligarchies fundamentally, like by default, are out for, out, out for themselves. Like they're, they're out for their own power. Uh, they're out for their own status. They're out for their own, you know, interests. Um, by the way, like everybody, right? They just, it just so happens that in a right. managerial society, they're in charge. And so they, yep. they have this kind of extreme level of, of, of potential for abuse yep. uh, of, of, of their power and of their positions. Um, yeah. And so, look, I, I mean, first of all, it's just, I would say the thing about Burnham is he's just, he's clinical 
uh, in describing the sort of state of the world. And so he, he doesn't, his books are actually kind of bracing to read because he doesn't spare anybody's feelings. He just kind mm -hmm. of flat out says, here's how it is. Uh -huh. um, and and, and I, I like that. Like, I, it's just like, okay, like, first, let's just get the facts on the table. Like, like mm -hmm. what, what, how does this whole thing work? Why are mm -hmm. things the way that they are? Mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, by the way, like, who, who am I in this formula? Like, is, is, is an interesting thing. And then look, I just think like, it's good, like, okay, having known that, you know, it's like, okay, now we have framework, a framework to be able to think about the choices that we make, right? And so the, the, the most obvious form of the choice is, you know, if you're somebody who has come up through this kind of managerial system, which a lot of us, a lot, a lot of people have, um, like, you know, look, I don't have the whatever Harvard, you know, business degree, but I've got a, you know, degree, you know, I've got a degree, I've got a technical degree from a, from a, from a really good research university that, you know, that is a technical managerial certification, <laughs> right? I, I, you right. Know, that's, that puts me in that class. Um, and so, but then it's like, okay, but now I, you know, now I have choices, right? And, and you know, maybe the most base level choice is, you know, for, for in our world, it's like, okay, do I want to be on the side of the, of the of basically the navy right the the, mm -hmm. the large incumbents right the 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 managerial right companies mm -hmm. right um and where where you know look i can you know i, I could go to i or you you know you, you guys have worked at these companies you could go to work at these companies you could spend your whole life at these companies you could make yeah. a lot of money you could probably do a little bit of good while you're there you could probably do some interesting work but like you're basically you're in the navy mm -hmm. um right and you're, you're sort of perpetuating the sort of status quo system um, or you can kind of say, look, I'm going to like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to fly the pirate flag. Um, mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to tilt towards the bourgeois capitalist model and I'm going to go to work for, you know, I'm not going to work for yeah. a professional manager XYZ. I'm going to go to work for Elon or whoever the, the equivalent is. Um, or I'm going to go actually start a company and actually be a, a, a bourgeois capitalist entrepreneur. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, you know, be a pirate is a much better tagline than be a bourgeois capitalist, right? Like if you want to motivate people. Okay. Uh, all right. All right. Okay. Last book, right? And you can pick anyone by this author, uh, Vision of the Anointed by uh, Saul. Oh, yeah. So this Saul, really. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is a really good book. This is a really good book for kind of thinking about kind of it's sort of like how political beliefs evolve. Um, and it, it actually it actually fits really well with Burnham. Um, they kind of they they kind of think in similar ways. Um, uh, so the, the 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 there's a series that he wrote a series of books on this topic. But the the, the core book that's worth reading is called A Conflict of Visions. Mm -hmm. um, and basically, what he says is basically it's like wh why why do you have like you know sort of modern like left wing political beliefs, right wing political beliefs? Like what 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 sort of what sort of underneath all this? What what motivates all this? And and sort of his model, which I think is a very good model, is basically there there's basically there's there's sort of two different kinds of political vision that somebody can have. Uh, and the, the terms that he uses are a, a, a constrained vision or an unconstrained vision. Mm. Um, and so let's let's take the unconstrained vision first. So the unconstrained vision is we can completely like redo, reform, like reconstitute society, right? And mm -hmm. and so and the, the and, and the extreme form, right, of, of an unconstrained vision is like communism, right? We, it's just like you know Marxism. We can literally create a new world mm -hmm. with a new man, right, who has like a completely different belief system with a completely different set of behaviors. You know, fascism had its own version of that. We can create a new kind of, you know, German or a new kind of Italian or whatever. Um, you know, we can sort of reformulate human nature, right? H human nature as it exists today is just like unacceptably bad in whatever sets of ways. People behave in all these degenerate ways. They're dest destructive to society. And so we're going to reform society and we're going to reshape humanity kind yeah. of in that process. And so he, he calls that the, it's sort of like the utopian, the unconstrained vision is sort of, it's sort of the utopian vision. Like there, there's a utopia on the other side of the political project. We just have to keep fighting until we get there. Um, the other axis um, is what he calls the constrained vision. Um, and the constrained vision basically starts with, you know, human beings are imperfect. Uh, the world is messy. 
um, and attempts to accomplish sweeping social change often end up backfiring horribly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you say you want a communist utopia. What mm-hmm. you get is, you know, Stalinist Soviet Union with like, you know, 50 million people dead. By the way, right. one great book also is Seeing Like a State, which basically yes. has like a great list of like every, uh, I would say, but it's slight tangent. One of the big lessons I think I've picked up from Mark uh, and not to flatter Mark too much is it's often not the intent that matters. Actually, it's never the intent that matters. It's always the outcome. And seeing like it's actually another great book where these people start out with the best of intents and it's almost always like terrible outcomes. Yeah, right. So what, so what Thomas Sowell would say is, right, the people with the unconstrained vision are focused on intent and, they, 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 and, they, they're, and they're often just like flat out simply wrong about the outcomes. But frankly, they, they actually don't care. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and it's like, I'll just give you an example. Like there, there, there are a whole bunch of countries. I won't name the, There's a whole bunch of countries right now that are putting Marxist governments back in, 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 into power, like right now. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, OK, and this is the classic thing. It's like, OK, Marxism has been tried and led a disaster like 80 times. Let's try it for the 81st time. Mm-hmm. Right. Like <laughs> clearly you're dealing with people who have like, quote unquote, good intent and then very little regard for the for the positive consequences. That's very common for people with the unconstrained vision. Um, people with the constrained vision, they're like, look, no, like the intention is like, no, that's not the thing. It's like what actually happens. And mm-hmm. what actually happens is we don't get to utopia, right? We, it, the pursuit of utopia just gets us to tyranny and madness and death. We're, we're not going to do that, right? The outcome matters too much. Instead, what we're going to do is we're, con- we're going to constrain our goals. And instead of trying to reform society, we're going to try to make it maybe a little bit better a step at a time, right? Mm-hmm. And, and of course, what happens is people with the unconstrained vision look at people with a constrained vision. They're like, my God, how can you not want to like fix all these problems and like make the perfect society? Mm-hmm. And people with the um, constrained vision look at the people with the unconstrained vision and say, oh my God, you're a menace you're going to destroy everything right <laughs> you and your crazy utopian dreams are going to create hell on earth right yeah. and you're going to be stalin or mao Zedong or pol pot or you know adolf, adolf hitler and all these people that kind of you know that kind of actually tried this kind of you know social social reengineering. um and so and, and so anyway what he says is look it, it, these are like two different kinds of people right it's mm-hmm. it's like the, the kind of person with the you know we all know people like this the person with the unconstrained vision it's just like their their eyes are on fire with the idea of a of a of a, of a fundamentally better and different world and the people with a constrained vision are like, you know, are much more like cynical, right, about human nature and much more like, I don't, you know, you know, it's, uh, there's the famous metaphor, uh, uh, Chesterton uh, kind of talked about this. And there's the metaphor of the Chesterton's fence, right, um, he, he talked about, which is like, okay, you know, you're whatever, you're walking through the woods and you see a fence and you're like, wow, that fence is ugly. I think I should tear it down. And it's like, okay, well, okay, wait, stop, wait, stop. Like, <laughs> question number one, why is there a fence here, right? Like, <laughs> what is being kept in or out? And, and Right. And you really better know, like, why that fence is there before you decide to tear it down. And, and by the way, the decision might to tear it down might be the right decision. But like, mm-hmm. you better know ahead of time. Right. Or whatever. The Jurassic Park T-Rex, you know, that they've been working on, you know, mutating on the other side of the fence is going to come, you know, you know, eat, eat, you know, eat you. So so it's it's the people with a constrained vision are like much more cautious about these kinds of sweeping social agendas, social programs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then basically in Vision of the Anointed, he then takes that framework and he says, we happen to be ruled predominantly in the West. We, we are ruled by this, what Burnham would call the oligarchy, this sort of, you know, sort of elite oligarchy. Um, and, um, and, and they are basically consumed with these utopian dreams. Um, mm-hmm. And they are, as a consequence, extraordinarily dangerous. This is why he calls it vision of the anointed. Mm-hmm. So he, 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 his, so Sowell's term for the sort of what Burnham calls the oligarchy, uh, Sowell's term is the anointed. And he's, he's kind of, he's, he's using that term kind of tongue in cheek, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's anointed. It's like, okay, anointed by whom to do what? Well, yeah. anointed yeah. by themselves, right? To make decisions on behalf of everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so that, that second book is Vision of the Anointed. And it's just, it's just a scathing indictment of the kinds of people who basically embark on these big social engineering projects and then end up basically causing huge wreckage uh, in the process. 
Um, you know, I just think not, not, not that that should sound familiar in this day and age. Mm. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I would say that those three books, uh, Ancient City, Anything by Bueno, Anything by Sowell, I think if you read that, I think, you know, um, you're kind of like, you know, down the road of understanding where Mark stands a lot of issues. Uh, but there's another question which you often get, and I'm going to try and answer it for you, uh, which is uh, how do I get Mark's attention? And the answer, I think, is write a fantastic tweet. Well, the big answer is be so good I can't ignore you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and, and on Twitter, right, right, write a, write a tweet. Write well, a tweet that'll so just I... get him to be uh, unblocked. Uh, follow, follow in the first place. Uh, well, sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, no, but, I mean, okay, this was amazing. Um, one final question, I'm going to let you go. Star Wars and or, what do you think? Oh, it's fantastic. It's like, it's, yeah, it's outstanding. It's fantastic. <laughs> no, it's like a, it's like a best case. It's like a best case. Yeah. I mean, like it's, it's this guy, there's this genius, there's this genius, there's this genius, uh, uh Tony Gilroy. Um, and, uh, he's probably, you know, best known for the movie, uh, Michael Clayton. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, he has worked on and, and he's been kind of a script doctor and kind of behind the scenes guy on a very large number of the great movies of like the last 20 years. Um, and, uh, they basically, and he, he was basically, if you, if you saw the, the, the movie Rogue One, um, mm -hmm. which a lot of people think is like the best Star Wars movie since the original, uh, right. a couple movies, um, a mutual you know, he, friend of ours, I wouldn't say who said, uh, he liked the movie because people die. And yeah. Well, so. So a lot of this, this is this. A lot of this was a lot. According to the stories, a lot of this was this guy Tony Gilroy. So there were other people that like started making the movie, and then basically the story goes is that Tony Gilroy kind of finished the movie. Um, and and look, it, yeah, it's it's the thing. Like any 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 serious telling, right? It, it's 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 funny, right? Because it's like Star Wars, but it's like okay, where's the war? Like where where's the war story, right? Like mm -hmm. where's the, you know there, there's a genre of war story, mm -hmm. right? And there are many war, you know, great war stories, war movies, whatever. And like in war, people die, right? Like, mm -hmm. and, and so, right. Whereas if it's like, a, if it's like a, a fantasy, it's like everybody gets, you know, lives and gets medals in the end in a real war, people die. And so it's, it's the, it's, you know, Rogue One was like the first actual war movie mm -hmm. um, of, of that, uh, you know, kind of set in that universe. Um, and, and so anyway, he, he, so the story goes, Gilroy kind of came in and fixed, fixed the movie um uh and redid the ending and then um you know they've they, they did this incredible thing they do in hollywood from time to time is they kind of picked a super genius and they put him in charge and let him run um <laughs> and yeah yeah no i mean it's, it's legitimately and it's and it's fascinating also because it's like it's 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 um he's doing he's doing i think i know what he's doing i mean we're only halfway through it so i don't i think he's I have high hopes for the rest of the, like, I think he may be doing some very special things in where the story's going. All right. Um, so I, 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 All right. uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, Mark is not a fan of a lot of the recent popular fare. Uh, I won't name them, uh, but this particular <laughs> one, you know, I was very surprised that he liked it. All right, there we go. Okay. So, you know, it, we didn't go seven hours, but I think in this, it, this we, is, yeah, we just crossed two. Uh, yeah. We in two hours and we covered everything from Sowell to Burnham to Pounder yeah, fundraising to my favorite, Mark's advice on what to do on a first date, uh, yes. um, which we definitely <laughs> do. But Mark, always a pleasure, uh, you know, um, and to everyone uh, watching this, remember, you're just one tweet away from either getting followed or being forever blocked. So with that thought, <laughs> thank you, everyone. This is Thanks, amazing. Mark. Thanks, Mark. <laughs> right, we'll see you guys.